I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part three of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I hope you've been enjoying these podcasts so far. If you have, I hope that you'll subscribe on iTunes, and if you really like them, please leave a good review. And if you'd like to help make this podcast possible, go to clearshakespeare.com support and please kick in a few bucks. Thanks a lot. Let's dive in with Act 2, Scene 2. Now, where were we? This crazy night of omens, of natural wonders, was just coming to an end. All the conspirators had gotten together at Brutus's house, and the last thing we saw was Brutus and his new friend Caius Ligarius teaming up on their way to Julius Caesar's house. And because Shakespeare plays don't have any built-in big set changes or overlaps, it's much more like a cinematic crossfade, and we go immediately from them leaving at one door, saying they're going to Caesar's house, to, guess what, Caesar entering at his house. Evidently also early in the morning. Because the first thing he says is, Nor heaven nor earth have been at peace tonight. That nor nor construction is much more like our idea of neither nor. So neither heaven nor earth have been at peace tonight. Which is to say they've both been like a battle. He's noticed the crazy stuff happening, too. He goes on, Thrice hath Calpurnia in her sleep cried out, Help, ho, they murder Caesar. So three times in her sleep, Calpurnia's been dreaming, and she's cried out, she's yelled out loud, Help, ho. Ho meaning something like, Hey there, or over there, like, You there, help me. They murder Caesar. Ooh, so she's having murder dreams. Dreams, of course, being another important source of omens. That seems like a bad sign, Caesar. And it almost seems like he's beginning a little monologue, but immediately he calls out to someone. He says, who's within? Which is sort of another way of saying, who's in that other room there? Specifically because he's looking for a servant to help him. So is there any servants there for me? And he yells out to him and in comes a servant. The servant says, my lord. And immediately Caesar has a strange request. He says, go bid the priests do present sacrifice and bring me their opinions of success. Interesting. Remember how earlier they were talking about how Caesar had suddenly gotten more superstitious and started believing in these omens? Well, now when he's worried about his wife's dream, the first thing he does is call for the priests. Go bid the priests. Go ask or tell them or command them. Do present sacrifice. Not present sacrifice. Present, which means immediate, at once. And he asks the servant to bring me their opinions of success. Not just like their personal opinions, but more like their judgments or even their predictions of success. You know, whether he's going to succeed in the future. And what does a sacrifice have to do with their predictions about the future? Well, as we'll see later, it probably has something to do with reading the sacrifice, literally looking through the entrails of the animal. We'll get to it soon. It's really cool. But his mind has immediately turned to fortune telling. And the servant follows him. He says, I will, my lord. And off he goes to go talk to the priests. And in comes Calpurnia with a very similar sentiment to what Portia just said to Brutus. She says, what mean you, Caesar? Mean in the sense of like, what do you intend to do? Think you to walk forth? Forth generally means like outside. Do you think you're going to leave this house? And let's follow that word forth through the rest of this scene because it's going to be really important. So she immediately asks him, are you going to go out today? And she almost answers her own question. She says, you shall not stir out of your house today. Stir in the sense of move or leave. You're not leaving this house today. It's not happening. And Caesar picks up on that walk forth line and he immediately responds to that cue. He says, Caesar shall forth. Again, using that third person, Caesar, not me, not I shall go forth. Caesar shall forth. I will go out. And why? Why is he so confident? He says, The things that threatened me ne'er looked but on my back. Ne'er looked but is a very strange construction, but it means something like 
only looked on my back or didn't look on anything except my back. You ever seen those online videos of people turning their backs on big cats at the zoo? And as soon as they turn around, the big cat starts stalking them? It's sort of that same image. All these forces that are arrayed to threaten him, well, they were just threatening him because they could only see his back. But he goes on, when they shall see the face of Caesar, they are vanished. So as soon as I turn around, they disappear. If I actually put any attention on them, they're gone. They're cowards. But Calpurnia doesn't accept that. She says, Caesar, I never stood on ceremonies, yet now they fright me. We're actually familiar with this phrase, stand on ceremony, but it means something fairly different today than what it used to mean. Here it means, I never paid attention to omens. I guess it's possible this is actually where we get the phrase stand on ceremony from, if it didn't already exist at the time. So she says, I never believed it before, but now they fright me, now they scare me. Probably referring both to her dream and to all the stuff that's been going on all night. And she goes on to describe that. She says, there is one within, besides the things that we have heard and seen, recounts most horrid sights seen by the watch. So there's one within. There's a person inside the house who, besides the things that we have heard and seen, oh, so evidently they've seen some of these omens themselves just looking out the window, and they've heard them. So besides all of that stuff, this person inside recounts, recounts means tells or relates, most horrid sights seen by the watch. Watch here means something like the night watchman or the guards. So this person evidently describes some horrible things that they've seen on the watch. And she goes on to describe what he said. She says, A lioness hath whelped in the streets, and graves have yawned and yielded up their dead. Whelped means given birth. So right out there on the streets, a lioness has given birth, which is highly unusual. Usually they go off to their den or something. Very similar to that lion that was walking around in the capital that we talked about earlier. And not only that, graves have yawned. I love this verb. Think of the grave as a mouth that's yawning, that's opening up, and yielded up their dead. Yielded up means like cast back or send back, almost literally like the mouth is vomiting up the dead that it swallowed. This is actually very, very similar language to that same Hamlet passage we talked about earlier, right at the beginning of that play. She goes on with more examples, and even stranger ones. Fierce, fiery warriors fought upon the clouds in ranks and squadrons and right form of war, which drizzled blood upon the capital. I got your alliteration right here. Fierce, fiery warriors fought. That's a lot of F sounds. So it's as though you can see warriors fighting in the clouds. In ranks. Ranks are like troops or armies and squadrons, those groups of soldiers. And right form of war. Which means something like proper military formations. So not only does it sound like there are battles going on in the sky, it's as though the people can see them. So these battles drizzled blood upon the capital onto the Capitoline Hill, which we'll see very soon is where Caesar's assassination is going to take place. So it's as though those figures dying in the clouds are raining blood down on the capital. The noise of battle hurtled in the air. Horses did neigh, and dying men did groan, and ghosts did shriek and squeal about the streets. So the noise of battle hurtled in the air. We use the word hurtle today, but it means something different. Then it meant sort of resounded violently. Originally it comes from a word that means to collide. So the noise of battle was making all this noise in the air. What other noise? Horses did neigh, and dying men did groan. So it really fills in in your imagination the sounds of this insane night. And what final sound? Ghosts did shriek and squeal about the streets. That's an amazing series of sounds. Shriek, squeal, streets. You can almost hear the ghost sounds. Again, this is very similar sounding to what Shakespeare's going to do in Hamlet, probably in just a few weeks or months' time. The verbs he uses there are squeak and gibber, which are also good. 
Here we get shriek and squeal, almost like pigs. So it's a really sensory-rich description that she puts out here, based on what she heard from the watchman. And she concludes, Oh, Caesar, these things are beyond all use, and I do fear them. Use here has a slightly different meaning than what we know. It means what we're used to, or normal experience. So all these strange occurrences are so far beyond stuff we're used to, and I do fear them. And finishing up this speech, you get those long syllables of all use. Instead of the customary unstressed all, here it's all use. And she ends with five monosyllables, and I do fear them. It slows down a fairly breathless speech. But Caesar isn't listening, really. He cuts her off. He finishes her verse line. He says, what can be avoided whose end is purposed by the mighty gods? So stop talking. What can we avoid if its end, in other words, if its outcome is purposed, is determined or decided by the mighty gods? Like if they've already made up their mind, I can't avoid it. And then he contradicts himself. He says, yet Caesar shall go forth. For these predictions are to the world in general as to Caesar. So not only is there nothing he can do about fate, but he decides, actually, I am going to go forth. There's that word forth again, that refrain. Why? Because these predictions are to the world in general. In other words, they relate just as much to the world in general as they do to Caesar, to me. Just because it's raining blood in Rome doesn't mean that one particular person is going to get killed. There's nothing Caesary about this stuff. It's not like his name is written in blood in the clouds. But she actually has a comeback to that. She says, when beggars die, there are no comets seen. Beggars as in sort of poor anonymous people. When those kind of people die, there's no comets in the sky. The heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes. So the heavens blaze forth. In other words, kind of like announce with a blaze of light. What are they announcing? The death of princes. Princes, either literally royal people or maybe just sort of important famous people. And these two lines are really sort of a powerful antithesis. So there's no comets when beggars die but the heavens blaze forth when princes die. But he has a comeback to that too, and it specifically picks up on her words die and death. He says, cowards die many times before their deaths. So maybe you're right, maybe this is all predicting my death. But you know what? At least I've been brave. Cowards, those guys are already dead many times by the time they die for real. He says, the valiant never taste of death but once. So valiant people like me never taste of, never experience death, but only one time at the end of their life. It's another antithesis as a direct counterpoint to hers. It's like an antithesis of an antithesis. So where she compared beggars and princes, he's comparing cowards and the valiant. He's really very resigned to this. He says, of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, the necessary end, will come when it will come. So of all the wonders that I have heard yet, in other words, up till now, it seems to me most strange. It seems like the strangest thing of all that men should be afraid i.e. afraid of death, seeing the death a necessary end, in other words, inevitable or unavoidable, everybody dies, will come when it will come. So she may actually have convinced him that all these signs are for him. But his response is, look, I'm brave, I'm Caesar, I'm going to have to die at some point, I'll be okay. And if I'm not, you know what, that's fine. So she still has not convinced him in any way. He's still going forth. And just then, the servant who he sent out a few lines back comes back. That was a very quick sacrifice, apparently. Are they keeping the priests in the next room? So here's the servant, and Caesar turns to him and says, what say the augurers? So he's probably pretty pumped up at this point. He's looking for more specific signs. So what do the augurers say? Augurers refers to priests who predict the future from natural signs. And the servant's response is really interesting. So what do the augurers say? They would not have you to stir forth today. There's that word forth again. They wouldn't have you go outside today. They want you to stay in here. Why? And here's some bizarre stuff. 
Plucking the entrails of an offering forth, they could not find a heart within the beast. So plucking the entrails of an offering, in other words, a sacrificed animal, forth. Plucking forth means pulling out. But there's that word forth again. So taking the entrails, the internal organs out, presumably to examine them for their augury, they could not find a heart within the beast. Whoa, that must freeze the room right there. An animal with no heart inside it? And that must give Caesar pause. But he has a response to it. It might take him a little while, but his response is, the gods do this in shame of cowardice. Okay, the gods do this in shame of, in other words, to teach us to be ashamed of cowardice. Why? Caesar should be a beast without a heart if he should stay at home today for fear. Caesar should be, in other words, Caesar would be a beast without a heart, a heartless animal, if he were to stay at home today for fear, because of fear. No, Caesar shall not. And look at all this third person again. Caesar should, Caesar shall not. Instead of I and me. Even when he's just around friends and family and people who work for him, he's very conscious of his public image, what Caesar should and should not do. So he says, I'm not going to stay at home because I'm afraid. Danger knows full well that Caesar is more dangerous than he. So danger, like the literal embodiment of the quality of danger, knows full well, knows very well, that Caesar is more dangerous than even danger is. We are two lions littered in one day, and I, the elder and more terrible. So we're two lions, two lion cubs littered, born in one day. So Caesar and danger are twin lions, and I, the elder and more terrible. So I'm the older twin, and I'm more terrible. I'm more scary or fiercer, more dangerous than danger. And because of that, he concludes, and Caesar shall go forth. There's that refrain again and again, Caesar shall go forth. Caesar as the lion, Caesar is more dangerous than danger. This is image making. But Calpurnia still isn't having it. She's terrified. And now she's the one to cut him off in his verse line. She says, alas, my lord, your wisdom is consumed in confidence. Your wisdom is consumed, eaten up, or even burned up in confidence by your overconfidence. You're so confident that it's destroyed your wisdom. It also sounds amazing. Consumed in confidence. Not only do you get those hard C sounds, but you also get con, con. Do not go forth today. Again, that refrain, do not go forth. Call it my fear that keeps you in the house and not your own. So you can blame it on me. It's my fear. You're not the one who's afraid. Your wife is afraid. We'll send Mark Antony to the Senate house and he shall say you are not well today. Antony will go there for you. He'll say you're not well. You're not feeling well. Great. No problem. Let me upon my knee prevail in this. So just like Portia, she's kneeling to her husband, begging him. So let me prevail in this. Let me win you over in this matter. Just let me win. And finally, when she begs and begs and begs on her knees, Caesar replies, Mark Antony shall say I am not well, and for thy humor, I will stay at home. Humor, not in our modern sense. Here it means whim or inclination, just whatever you want. Because you want it, I'll stay at home. So she's finally successfully convinced him. And just at that second, in comes someone we've met before. And Caesar recognizes him. He says, here's Decius Brutus. Remember the guy who was elected by the conspirators to go convince Caesar to come? The unicorn guy? Well, he's here to put the plan into effect. Here's Decius Brutus. He shall tell them so. So Calpurnia wanted to send Mark Antony. But if Decius Brutus is here, he can tell them. Decius says, Caesar, all hail. Good morrow, worthy Caesar. Good morrow, like good morning. So all the standard pleasantries for an important guy. Why is he here? He says, I come to fetch you to the Senate house. I'm here to bring you to the Senate. And Caesar picks up on his cue, I come to fetch you, he says, and you are come in very happy time to bear my greetings to the senators and tell them that I will not come today. 
So you're coming very happy time, not happy at all in our modern sense of joyful. Here it means like exactly the right time or like an opportune time. You're just in time to bear, to bring my greetings to the senators and tell them that I will not come today. And he amends himself. He says, cannot is false and that I dare not falser. So he says, I will not come. If I were to say I cannot come, that would be false. That would be a lie. And that I dare not come, that would be even falser. That would be even worse of a lie. Just that I'm not going to. I will not. I will not come today. Tell them so, Decius. Again, public image is so important to this guy. So he wants to be absolutely sure he's using just the exact language that he wants to use. I will not. Don't say I cannot. Don't say I dare not. Say I will not. And Calpurnia offers a little bit of an amendment. She says, say he is sick. But Caesar isn't having that from her. He, in fact, he interrupts in the middle of her verse line to say, shall Caesar send a lie? I'm not sick. I'm going to say exactly what I want to say. Should I send a lie? No. Have I in conquest stretched mine arm so far to be afeard to tell gray beards the truth? Have I in conquest? Remember, he's just come back from basically conquering the world. Have I stretched my arm so far in conquest as though he's literally reaching out across Europe to take all of it like someone at a poker table? So did I go through all of that, conquering the known world, to be afeard, in other words, to be afraid, to tell graybeards the truth? If I'm such a great conqueror, why should I be afraid to tell old guys the truth? No, he says, Decius, go tell them Caesar will not come. Use exactly those words. And this is sort of what the conspirators were afraid of, that he wouldn't show up. So Decius starts in his plan. He says, most mighty Caesar, let me know some cause, lest I be laughed at when I tell them so. So give me a cause why you will not come, lest, in other words, so I'm not laughed at. And Caesar takes his cue from that word cause. He says, the cause is in my will. Will as in what I want to do, my own desires. He says, I will not come. Well, the cause is in my will. It's just what I want to do. I will not come. He's repeating that same phrase over and over again. It's almost another one of those chiasmus constructions where you get the same word twice in the middle of a sentence. The cause is in my will. I will not come. Will, will. That is enough to satisfy the Senate. So just saying I will not come is enough to sort of assure them. Though you get that cool alliteration of satisfy and Senate. But he's got a little addendum just for Decius. He says, but for your private satisfaction, because I love you, I will let you know. So that's enough to satisfy the Senate. But to satisfy you privately, just because I like you, I'll tell you what the real reason is. Calpurnia here, my wife, stays me at home. Stays me means like detains me or keeps me. So she's the reason I'm staying at home. She dreamt tonight she saw my statue, which like a fountain with a hundred spouts did run pure blood, and many lusty Romans came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. This is kind of an amazing dream. So she dreamt tonight, in other words last night, that she saw my statue, which like a fountain with a hundred spouts. That's sort of a cool image. You can really imagine that Roman statue as if it was the middle of a fountain with a hundred spouts all spouting out water. But instead of water, he says, it did run pure blood. And many lusty Romans, lusty not in the sexual sense, but meaning like eager or vigorous or lively, they all came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. They all washed their hands in it, in other words. This is an incredibly strange image. So the Romans all coming up to this fountain of Caesar's statue and bathing in his blood. In the original Plutarch source, Calpurnia just dreams of seeing his dead body. But Shakespeare has definitely improved on it in this dream. And why would Shakespeare change it from the actual body to a statue? Well, remember, we've heard about Caesar's statues before, from Marullus and Flavius. Symbolism is incredibly important. His statue, the image of Caesar, not just the body. The body's just a dude. 
but his image is running blood. And Caesar goes on, And these does she apply for warnings and portents and evils imminent, and on her knee hath begged that I will stay at home today. So these, these images, these dreams, does she apply for? In other words, she interprets them to be warnings and portents. Again, those kind of omens or signs or predictors. And evils imminent. Evils as in misfortunes or bad happenings. Imminent, about to happen. And on her knee hath begged that I will stay at home today. He's kind of imitating her language there. On my knee. Well, on her knee she's begged me. And that's a real roadblock to Decius. But he has the solution. He replies, this dream is all amiss interpreted. You've interpreted this dream totally wrong, completely incorrectly. Notice this is another example of construing or misconstruing that interpretation of dreams. You've totally misconstrued the meaning. It was a vision fair and fortunate. So it was a vision, it was a dream, fair, in other words, good and beautiful and fortunate, full of fortune. The poetry really helps the feeling here with the alliteration of fair and fortunate. It was a great dream. Your statue spouting blood in many pipes, in which so many smiling Romans bathed, signifies that from you great Rome shall suck reviving blood, and that great men shall press for tinctures, stains, relics, and cognizance. So the fact that your statue was spouting blood in many pipes, almost like the pipes coming out of a fountain, in which so many smiling Romans bathed, so they all washed their hands in it, signifies as in the word sign, it's a sign that from you, from Caesar, great Rome shall suck reviving blood. So it's almost as though the entire city of Rome, all the people of Rome, are getting a blood transfusion from Caesar. It revives them. It brings them back to life. I also really like all these S sounds. Spouting, smiling, signifies, suck. It's that kind of snaky language that Cassius uses too. So what else does it signify? That great men shall press, which means they'll crowd close to that statue, for tinctures. Tinctures were these sort of amulets that you would get, and they'd supposedly be full of the blood of a martyr, so you could keep them close to you. Stains, by the same token, are any object that's stained with a martyr's blood. Relics, you may know if you're Catholic, are sort of any keepsake from the body of a martyr. So this is Caesar as a martyr, almost like a holy saint. The irony, of course, is this is in some ways what he's going to become after the assassination. So those holy relics, and also as cognizance. Cognizance, as in the word recognize, it refers to any sort of badge or token, but especially the kind worn by the followers of a particular person. Like if you wore, I don't know, striped red and blue to refer to the political person you follow. This, by Calpurnia's dream, is signified. There's that word signified again. This is what that sign means. And notice that it starts on a stressed syllable to really ram it home. This, by Calpurnia's dream, is signified. So Decius ends with this, by Calpurnia's dream, is signified. And Caesar immediately echoes his construction. He says, and this way have you well expounded it. So this, this, signified, expounded. Expounded is like systematically explained it, point by point. Decius agrees, of course. He says, I have when you have heard what I can say. Oh, so there's more to this. He's not done with his interpretation. And know it now. This is what he can say. Know this. The Senate have concluded to give this day a crown to mighty Caesar. Okay. They've concluded, they've decided or determined to give this day a crown to mighty Caesar. It's decided all he needs to do is show up and he'll be king of Rome. Have they actually decided this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it's an incredible enticement to Caesar. Remember, Decius said that he was going to use Caesar's vanity to get to him? Well, here it is. Here's the bait. And then he draws it back a little bit. He says, if you shall send them word, you will not come. Their minds may change. He's using Caesar's phrase against him, that you will not come. So if you send them word that you can't come, their minds may change. 
then he guilts him a little bit. He says, besides, it were a mock apt to be rendered for someone to say, break up the Senate till another time when Caesar's wife shall meet with better dreams. It were a mock, in other words, like a act of mockery or a sarcastic comment apt to be rendered, likely to be made by someone. So what could they say about him? Someone might say, break up the Senate till another time when Caesar's wife shall meet with better dreams. Meet with means happen to have. So we can't meet again until Calpurnia has better dreams. That's how they're going to tease him. And this is a guy who does not seem like he enjoys being teased. And then Decius really turns the screws. He says, if Caesar hide himself, shall they not whisper, oh, Caesar is afraid. I mean, he might as well make the chicken noise after this. The burk, burk. So if Caesar hides himself, not just I will not come, but actively hides himself from the senators, Shall they not whisper? Won't everybody say about you, Lo, in other words, behold, or see, Caesar is afraid. And notice that isn't a complete verse line. There's silence built into the end of it. That Caesar is afraid just hangs in the air. Do you really want people to say that about you? And as soon as that horrible thought is out in the air, he says, Pardon me, Caesar, for my dear, dear love to your proceeding bids me tell you this, and reason to my love is liable. So pardon me, forgive me. My dear, dear love... Those three long syllables at the end. Dear, dear love to your proceeding. Proceeding means like advancement. Advancement from general to king, maybe. So because I love your advancement so much, it bids, in other words, it asks me, or in this case, more like it makes me tell you this. My love to you. And reason to my love is liable. Liable here means like bound or connected or belonging to. My reason sort of goes away. It's too tied up in my love. You also get that alliteration of love and liable. I had to tell you because I love you. I'm not going to keep this terrible stuff from you. And it works like a charm. Flattery and shame, that always works. Caesar immediately caves. He says, How foolish do your fears seem now, Calpurnia? So she told him, Stay here because of my fear? Well, now Caesar turns to her and says, Your fears seem foolish now. Now, after Decius's interpretation, you also get another alliteration of foolish and fears. In fact, Caesar says, I am ashamed I did yield to them. So I'm actually ashamed that I yielded, I gave in to them, to your fears. Give me my robe, for I will go. And presumably this is his going out robe, his sort of quasi-royal robe. And notice also there's a little bit of an empty foot at the end of that verse line. Give me my robe, for I will go, and then da-da is somewhere. So it's more abrupt, there's a little bit of silence built in. And just as Decius has finally convinced him, in come a whole bunch of conspirators to bring him. Because Caesar says... And look where Publius has come to fetch me. And there he is. Publius says, Good morrow, Caesar. Good morning, in other words. And Caesar finishes his line. Welcome, Publius. And then he turns to them one by one. He says, What, Brutus, are you stirred so early too? Stirred as in woken up or got up. You're up so early in the morning too? And not just him. Good morrow, Casca. Good morning, Casca. And here's the most unexpected one. Caius Ligarius? Caesar was ne'er so much your enemy as that same ague which hath made you lean. Caesar was ne'er so much. This means something like not nearly as much of your enemy as that same ague. Ague is like a fever or any kind of illness, which hath made you lean, which made you skinny. So we've been enemies a little bit in the past. Remember there was that falling out between them? But Caesar's sort of patching it up here. He says, your real enemy is that illness. I'm not your enemy. And then he asks them, what is it o'clock? In other words, what time is it? And Brutus pipes up, Caesar, tis struck an eight. Time is sort of strangely compressed here. Remember, it was like three o'clock in the last scene, and now it's eight o'clock. That is when they said they were all going to show up. And Caesar says to them all, I thank you for your pains and courtesy. Not literal pains, of course. 
Here it just means like the trouble you went through for me. Thanks for everybody showing up. And then we have a sort of unexpected arrival. He says, see, Antony that revels long a nights is notwithstanding up. So even Antony's arrived. Antony that revels, in other words, parties or drinks, long a nights. A nights means during the night or maybe even every night. He parties all night long, is notwithstanding up. Notwithstanding means despite that or nevertheless. So despite all his partying, he's awake. Good morrow, Antony. Good morning, Antony. And Antony, who might still be a little bleary-eyed or hungover, says, So to most noble Caesar. So here means like the same. Same to you, Caesar. And he's ready to go. He says, bid them prepare within. So presumably he turns to his servant and says, bid them. In other words, tell them to prepare within. Prepare inside there. Get the servants ready to go. I am to blame to be thus waited for. It's my own fault that they're all having to wait for me. And then he greets more of these guys. He says, now Cinna, now Metellus. What, Trebonius, I have an hour's talk in store for you. What here means something like, how now, how's it going, or hey, I have an hour's talk in store for you. We're used to that phrase. It literally comes from the meaning of stored up. So I have an hour's talk that I've stored up to give to you, like a grain silo or something. And he elaborates on that to Trebonius. He says, remember that you call on me today. Be near me that I may remember you. So remember that you visited me today. And then be near me, be close, that I may remember you. And this second instance, not just in our modern sense of remember, there's also a sense of reward. So you have remember at the beginning of one line and then right at the end of the second line. So because you came to visit me, I'll reward you. And Trebonius says, Caesar, I will. And then he has this strange little aside to the audience, or maybe just to himself. He says, and so near will I be that your best friends shall wish I had been further Caesar said, be near me. He says, I'm going to be so near to you that your friends are going to wish I'd been further away. He's really hinting at what's going to happen to Caesar. This is a nice way for Shakespeare to really ratchet up the tension. This is what you might call dramatic irony. Everybody in this room except Caesar and maybe Antony and Calpurnia know what's about to happen. And they're even talking to the audience about it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's huge buildup here. And Caesar has one more line to all of them. He says, Good friends, go in and taste some wine with me, and we, like friends, will straightway go together. Come taste some wine. Not just because we want to get day drunk here. This was sometimes done to sort of swear your friendship or loyalty. You'd have a ceremonial drink together. Before we leave the house, let's all go taste wine together. Now this is super ironic. These are all good friends of his. They will have drunk together to swear their loyalty. And in a few hours, something terrible is going to happen. He says, after we drink, like friends, since that drinking together will have made us more friends, will straightway go together. Straightway means at once, right away. So we have good friends and like friends. And they're all on their way as Brutus has another aside to the audience. He says that every like is not the same, O Caesar. The heart of Brutus earns to think upon that every like is not the same. Apparently this was a common proverb. Every like is not the same. Here it means something like, just because people seem like friends doesn't mean they actually are friends. And earns means something like mourns or grieves. So just thinking about the fact that his friends are about to betray Caesar, Brutus's heart grieves. And they all take that fateful walk to the capital. So their exit now is very loaded. Notice that every one of these scenes is ratcheting up the tension and ratcheting up the tension. Because this is the big event of this play, Julius Caesar. It's about to happen. The audience knows it's going to happen. They've all read it in class. And in the next scene, scene three, we're ratcheting up the tension even further with this little tiny scenelet. We see a character we've never met before, this guy Artemidorus. And he's alone on stage reading aloud from a paper that he holds. It says, Caesar, beware of Brutus. Take heed of Cassius. Come not near Casca. Have an eye to Cinna. 
Trust not Trebonius. Mark well Metellus Cimber. Decius Brutus loves thee not. Thou hast wronged Caius Ligarius. So he's literally listing all the conspirators and why Caesar should be afraid of them. Beware of Brutus. Take heed of. Take heed means like pay attention to or watch out for. Cassius. Come not near Casca. Have an eye to Cinna. Another phrase that literally means watch out for. Trust not Trebonius. Mark well. Mark means notice or sort of scrutinize. Decius Brutus loves thee not. Thou hast wronged Caius Ligarius. Like you actually hurt him. So it's a listing of grievances one by one. And there's some really cool alliteration in here. Beware of Brutus. Come not near Casca. Trust not Trebonius. Mark Metellus. So with these short little phrases, it's really making it stand out. And it's not in verse. It's just a straight up paragraph. So you need the sounds of the words to do the poetry work for you, not the rhythm. So after listing all these conspirators and why he should watch out for them, he goes on, There is but one mind in all these men, and it is bent against Caesar. This is a really amazing image, as though all these men share a single mind. Mind here means something like opinion or intention, but the image is almost literal, like they share one brain. We also get more alliteration with mind and men. And that mind, that idea, is bent against Caesar. Bent here means turned or aimed against Caesar. They all agree, and they agree to do away with you. If thou beest not immortal, look about you. So if you're not immortal, look about you. In other words, look around you. He's really hinting that they're going to try and kill you. It's also very interesting that he switches in the same sentence from thou to you. Thou being the less formal form. Almost like he's saying, you're not a god, by calling him thou. Though by the end of the sentence, he's reverted to you, which is how you would describe someone who is better than you socially or in a more formal way. And he goes on with another short sentence. Security gives way to conspiracy. Security, as in feeling too secure or being overconfident, that gives way to, that allows for conspiracy to take over. The mighty gods defend thee, which means may they defend you, the mighty gods. It's a wish for the mighty gods to defend him. And he signs it, thy lover Artemidorus. Not literally lover in our modern sense, but friend, a person who loves you. No idea where this guy got the information. It's leaked out somehow. Maybe he knows some of the conspirators. Maybe they even approached him. So he reads that out loud to let the audience know exactly what he's giving him. And he says, here will I stand till Caesar pass along. And as a suitor, will I give him this? So now we're back in verse because he's talking to the audience. So I'm going to stand right here, presumably in the street somewhere, until Caesar passes by. And as a suitor, like a petitioner, someone who wants something, will I give him this? Because usually when these guys passed by in the streets, somebody who needed something would just like hand them a paper to work with. My heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. Out of the teeth of, it's this incredibly alive image. Here it means something like free from the danger of. But it's almost like virtue can't escape the teeth of this terrible animal called emulation. Emulation is like envy or ambitious desire. So my heart laments. It just kills me that virtue, that a virtuous person, can't be safe from these envious people trying to kill him. If thou read this, O Caesar, thou mayst live. So it's possible you'll actually survive if you read this paper. If not, the fates with traitors do contrive. So if you don't read this... That means the fates, who in Greek and Roman mythology were these three goddesses who controlled how long the threat of a person's life would be. So if Caesar doesn't read this and gets killed, that means that the fates are contriving. Contriving means to conspire or plot with traitors. So it's as though there's a conspiracy with the fates themselves to kill him if he doesn't read this paper. And it may not be obvious just from reading it aloud because of the way our pronunciation has changed, but live and contrive in Shakespeare's time used to rhyme. 
So it's another one of these rhyming couplets that brings a scene to a close and shoots us into the next one. So we just saw the conspirators go off in the last scene, and now there's a very short scene, and Artemidorus goes right off after them. And then in comes a new set of characters for Act 2, Scene 4, and it's characters we've seen before. It's good old Portia. Look who gets a second scene. That's awesome. Congratulations. Not all wives in Shakespeare actually get a second scene. And Portia is worked up. What did we know about her last? Well, we knew that Brutus was going to tell her what the plan was. So she is nervous. And you'll see that in her language. She comes in with their servant Lucius, who we remember from when he was sleepy earlier. And she says, I prithee, boy, run to the Senate house. I prithee, which means like I ask you or even I order you to run to the Senate house. And he doesn't move. And she says, stay not to answer me, but get thee gone. Stay not, don't wait to answer me. Get thee gone, go, let's go to the Senate house. Why dost thou stay? Why are you waiting? And he finishes her verse line. He says, to know my errand, madam. To know my errand means like to find out what you want me to do. So go to the Senate house and then what? And she replies, I would have had thee there and here again, ere I can tell thee what thou shouldst do there. I would have had thee means something like, I would have preferred that you had gone there and here again. So you'd gone to the Senate house and returned here again, ere I can tell thee what thou shouldst do there, before I can tell you what you should do there. So basically she's saying, I can't tell you what you should do there. I just want you to go and see it and come back. She feels so left out of the process here, as you might too if you had her mind, but were stuck in what women were allowed to do. And so as she's freaking out publicly to Lucius, she has this aside to the audience or to herself. She says, oh, Constancy, be strong upon my side. Constancy is in like determination or self-control or sticking to your guns. She's talking to the quality of Constancy itself. Be strong upon my side. There's that cool alliteration of those S sounds, strong and side. But she's saying, I need you on my side here. Stick with me. Make me constant. Set a huge mountain between my heart and tongue. So remember, heart, almost like brain here. Set up a huge mountain to block the way between my heart and my tongue. So I don't say immediately what I'm thinking and worrying. I have a man's mind, but a woman's might. There's that cool contrast of mind and might, the very similar sounds. So I have the mind of a man but I have the might of a woman. I'm not quite strong enough to keep myself from doing what I know I shouldn't do. How hard it is for women to keep counsel. It's so hard for women to keep counsel, which means like secrets or private information. Oh, you know how women are. They just can't keep any secrets, those gossips. And she's stuck in her little soliloquy there. But Lucius is still on stage. And she turns to him and says, Art thou here yet? Like, are you still here? Lucius is genuinely mystified at this point. He says, Madam, what should I do? Run to the capital and nothing else? And so return to you and nothing else? You get that nice refrain there of, and nothing else? So you just want me to run to the capital and do nothing, and then come back to you and do nothing. So finally she responds. She says, yes, bring me word, boy, if thy lord look well, for he went sickly forth. So he says, nothing else? She says, yes, actually there is something else. Bring me word, boy, if thy lord look well. His lord, of course, is Brutus. Just let me know how Brutus is looking. For he went sickly forth. When he left the house, when he went out of the house, there's that word forth again, he was a little sick. And take good note what Caesar doth, what suitors press to him. Take good note. In other words, notice or really pay attention to what Caesar doth, what he does. And also what suitors press to him. Suitors, remember from the last scene, are like petitioners. They're people who want things and ask important people to do them for him. What suitors press to him. Press means like push forward or kind of crowd around him. Apparently, Brutus has really described this plot in detail to her, because as we'll see in the next scene, the plot is to literally have somebody ask him for something to distract him while he gets stabbed. So she's doing everything she can not to spill the beans. 
and notice as she's gotten more and more nervous what's happened to her language we get more of that enjambment that spilling over of ideas from one verse line to another and take good note what caesar doth as though her language is getting out of her control a little bit and she's so jumpy that she hears something she says hark boy what noise is that hark listen what noise is that and lucius can only say i hear none madam portia says prithee listen well prithee i ask you or even i order you listen well to it and she's going to describe what she heard she says i heard a bustling rumor like a fray and the wind brings it from the capital this is a beautiful line a bustling rumor bustling here means like agitated or even confused and rumor we're certainly familiar with that meaning like gossip but the latin root of the word rumor literally means noise so it can be like a clamor or a tumult like a whole big crazy noise you heard this bustling rumor like a fray a fray is a fight or even a brawl she thinks she hears the murder happening and the wind brings it from the capital as though the wind can actually push sound but lucius says sooth madam i hear nothing sooth means like truthfully or honestly and this is actually kind of an amazing cue because as soon as he says sooth in comes the soothsayer and portia's glad to have someone else to talk to she says come hither fellow come hither means like come here which way hast thou been so which way can mean like where it can also literally mean like past what like what have you walked past so where were you he says at mine own house good lady i just came from my house but she has more questions she says what is the clock what time is it and he replies about the ninth hour lady about 9 a.m shakespeare's really making us very cognizant of time here he's setting up like a countdown remember it was just 8 a.m now it's 9 a.m they're getting closer and closer to the big event and with this quick back and forth between portia and the soothsayer the rhythm of the play really picks up instead of these long monologues now you have a quick back forth what time is it what about now how's this going she has another question is caesar yet gone to the capital so has he already arrived at the capital and soothsayer says madam not yet i go to take my stand to see him pass on to the capital so i go to take my stand a stand is just literally a standing place but it's also actually a term from hunting almost like a blind where you'd go to wait for the prey to show up so he says i'm on my way to watch him go along on his way to the capital and she has another question thou hast some suit to caesar hast thou not so you have some suit you have some request or petition for caesar presumably it's the same thing to warn him about the ides of march he says that i have lady yeah i have a suit if it will please caesar to be so good to caesar as to hear me i shall beseech him to befriend himself so if it will please caesar to be so good to caesar as to hear me usually that phrase would be if it will please caesar to be so good as to hear me or to be so good to me as to hear me but no this is a suit that directly affects caesar if he listens to the soothsayer he'll be good to caesar if he does that i shall beseech him i'll beg or request him to befriend himself befriend himself be good to himself by not getting killed presumably this is a warning there's a little bit of almost jokiness to the language that the soothsayer uses and this sets off alarm bells for portia with another question she says why knowst thou any harms intended towards him do you know of anyone who intends to harm him is the plot out there and then the soothsayer has this awesome response he says none that i know will be much that i fear may chance you can hear that rhythm it's very different from everything else and those two halves of the line are very similarly constructed so none no harms that i know will be but much much harm that i fear may chance chance means like happen to occur so i don't know that any harms are going to happen but i'm afraid that some will and her questions have been concentrating the tension of the scene more and more and so finally the soothsayer relieves it by leaving he says good morrow to you good morning as in goodbye here the street is narrow so the street is too narrow for him to stand in here 
You also get that cool sound similarity of morrow and narrow. The throng that follows Caesar at the heels of senators, of praetors, common suitors, will crowd a feeble man almost to death. So the throng, the big crowd that follows Caesar at the heels, almost like a dog following its master, this crowd of senators, of praetors, remember those were the sort of 16 magistrates that served under the consul of Rome, sort of like judges. Brutus is one of them, by the way. And not just senators and praetors, not just important people, but common suitors. Suitors, again, being people that are asking for things. And common suitors from the common people. So not just the important people, but regular old people who just want something. That throng will crowd a feeble man almost to death. So is the soothsayer saying that he's a feeble man? That might be an interesting bit of casting, to cast him really sort of old and feeble. So he can't stand in the street here because it's too narrow and he'll get crushed by that crowd. I'll get me to a place more void, and there speak to great Caesar as he comes along. Void here as in more empty or less crowded. I'll go over to that place, and there I'll speak to great Caesar as he comes along, as he walks by. And he goes off to fulfill his mission. And Portia has a little monologue to herself after he leaves. We're about to see a big giant scene right after this, so this moment of just one person on stage is important to kind of thin out the rhythm of it a little bit. She says, I must go in. She has to go inside so she doesn't give anything away. Ay me, how weak a thing the heart of woman is. Again, she goes on and on about how weak women's hearts are. Oh, Brutus, the heavens speed thee in thine enterprise. So she's wishing good luck to Brutus. The heavens speed thee. May the heavens make you successful in thine enterprise. Enterprise is like your undertaking or your project. I hope your project succeeds. And then she suddenly remembers she's actually not alone on stage in the middle of her little aside because Lucius is still standing there. She gets herself back together and says, sure, the boy heard me. Sure as in surely. Oh my God, I bet he heard me. And she turns to him and says, Brutus hath a suit that Caesar will not grant. So it's almost a little bit funny. She has this excuse. He has a suit. He has a petition. He wants something and Caesar won't grant it to him. That's why I wished him success in his enterprise. Definitely not an assassination, if that's what you're implying. No, no, it just, he just had a suit. And then she turns back to the audience and says, Oh, I grow faint. This is exhausting to keep this secret, and the clock ticking down is driving her crazy. She's almost fainting. And she turns back to Lucius and says, Run, Lucius, and commend me to my lord. Commend means, like, carry my greetings or give my regards to my lord, to Brutus. Remember, before the soothsayer came in, he was going to run to the capital and see how Brutus was doing. And so she sends him and just says, Give him my regards. Say I am merry. Merry, like, in good spirits. I'm doing fine. Come to me again and bring me word what he doth say to thee. So come back to me and tell me what he tells you after you say that his wife is fine. So she is just melting down at this point. She needs information. And really, her anxiety is transferred to the audience. She's like a surrogate for us. It's getting closer and closer. And we're starting to get nervous, too. And they run off in different directions. Her home and him off to the capital. And actually, that's the last time we see Portia in this play. Too bad, I kind of liked her. She was tough. But it's not the last time we hear of her. But I won't spoil that part for you. And now we move into Act 3, Scene 1, which is right at the dead center of the play. And after all this time Shakespeare spends winding us up for this scene, it's finally here. And after the cascade of the last three scenes, now all of those characters meet up at once together. You have Caesar and the conspirators walking to the Capitol. Artemidorus, who wants to warn him about the assassination attempt, is there. The soothsayer is there. I don't know, maybe even Lucius shows up at one point. They're on their way through the streets, and then Caesar catches sight of the soothsayer, which is this cool moment, a kind of I told you so for Caesar. And he turns to him and maybe sort of smiles and says, the Ides of March are come, like I made it. And the soothsayer has another one of those witty comebacks, a pun. He says, I, Caesar, but not gone. Yeah, the Ides of March have come, but they haven't gone yet. You're not through the day yet. And just at that moment is when Artemidorus is going to make his move too. He says, hail Caesar. 
read this schedule. Schedule not like what he's going to do today. Schedule can refer to just about any document. So read over this document. Remember that warning Artemidorus had? He's going to try and pass it to Caesar in the guise of a suit, of a request. And Decius Brutus, who wants to make sure that the plot is going according to their plans, interrupts him. He says, Trebonius doth desire you to o'erread at your best leisure this his humble suit. O'erread as in read over. So Trebonius wants you to read over at your best leisure. In other words, whenever you have time, this his humble suit. Suit again like a request or a petition. So whenever you have a second, read this from Trebonius. But Artemidorus isn't messing around. He says, O Caesar, read mine first, for mine's a suit that touches Caesar nearer. Touches means like regards or affects or relates to. It has more to do with you, Caesar, personally. It touches you nearer. He says, read it, great Caesar. And you can hear his desperation in the language itself. You see all those E sounds? Caesar, nearer, read it, Caesar. It's as though he's saying, please read it. But this is in some ways the biggest mistake he could make because Caesar's reply is, what touches us ourself shall be last served. So he cues off of Artemidorus's words first and touches, and he says, what touches us ourself, what relates to me personally, shall be last served, not first served. So actually telling Caesar that it has to do with him makes him want to read it last. Notice, by the way, that Caesar's using us, ourself. This is what is sometimes referred to as the royal we. He's talking like a king before he's king. He's sort of counting his pronouns before they're hatched here. So he's trying to be all humble, but he's also kind of doomed himself. And Artemidorus has to get this information to him. He says, delay not, Caesar. Read it instantly. He's getting pretty desperate here. Don't delay. Read it instantly. Read it at once. And Caesar's surprised. He says, what, is the fellow mad? Is this guy crazy that he has to get this paper to me? And Publius is trying to get Artemidorus out of there as quickly as possible. He says, Sira, give place. Sira is a way you address someone of lower station. Like, guy, get out of here. And give place means make room for him. Get out of his face. And Cassius piles on because he's also eager to get going. He says, what, urge you your petitions in the street? Urge means like propose or advocate for. You're trying to get stuff from Caesar in the middle of the street? Come to the capital. That's where all the business gets done. Now, you could argue this should be to Caesar, come to the capital, because he wants to get moving too. But I like it as a response to what urge you your petitions in the street? No, come to the capital instead. The street's no place to do business. And Caesar starts to leave, and then this one guy, Popilius Lena, just sort of sidles up to Cassius and says, I wish your enterprise today may thrive. An enterprise is like an undertaking or a plan. It really seems like word has gotten out. Like, these guys are not good at keeping secrets. After all that stuff with Portia about how women can't keep secrets, it's nice to see that actually the men suck at it in some ways worse than the women do. This is a very leaky plot. Artemidorus knows about it. It seems like this guy Popilius Lena knows about it. The soothsayer like saw it in his animal entrails or something. So Popilius says very casually, I hope things go well for you today. And Cassius comes right back. He says, what enterprise, Popilius? Enterprise? I don't know about no enterprise. And Popilius just says, fare you well. Which can mean goodbye, but it can also mean, I hope you do well. Like, I hope you succeed. So this is all very wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And Brutus sees this all happen, and he comes up to Cassius right afterwards and says, What said Popilius Lena? And Cassius says, He wished today our enterprise might thrive. He's basically doing that as a quotation. This is exactly what he said. Although the cool thing about this is that he inverts the word order a little bit. So whereas Popilius said, I wish your enterprise today may thrive, Cassius says, he wished today our enterprise might thrive. And he immediately admits, I fear our purpose is discovered. Purpose as in our intentions, our plan. And it's discovered like it's exposed or uncovered. 
they're freaking out. And this really does a number on the audience too, because we're seeing these guys who are about to commit this incredibly consequential act worried that it might not work out. So again, this is a ratcheting up of tension. Is this big thing gonna happen? And all this time, Brutus is also watching what Popelius Lena does. And he says, look how he makes to Caesar. Makes to means goes over to or approaches. He's going over to Caesar. Mark him. Mark means pay attention to him. This plotting is basically the dictionary definition of suspense. I mean, the artist we know best for this is Alfred Hitchcock. And the way he always defined it was, if a bomb goes off, that's not suspense. That's just surprise. If we see a bomb planted under a table, and then we see two people sit down and have a long conversation at it, not knowing what's going on, that's suspense, because we know something they don't know. One of my favorite movies in the world is this Orson Welles movie called Touch of Evil, which basically does that bomb trick as its opening credits. So you have a bomb planted in the trunk of a car, and a timer is set on it, and then our two lead characters have a pleasant stroll right next to the car for about two minutes. And sometimes they're closer to it, and sometimes they're farther from it, And you really see that same kind of suspense happening in this scene. They just need to get Caesar to the Senate House. Is it going to happen on time? There are all these things that can go wrong because we know, but the characters don't, especially Caesar. Is Caesar going to get out of it? And what's amazing to this is basically everyone in the audience would have known, no, Caesar isn't going to get out of it. Caesar gets killed. But Shakespeare still manages to build up this incredible tension. Is Papilius Lana going to blow up the whole plan right here? And as they watch him get closer to Caesar, Cassius says, Casca. Be sudden, for we fear prevention. Be sudden means something like, be quick to act. Why? Because we fear prevention. We fear someone stopping our action. Cassius is sweating bullets at this point. He says, Brutus, what shall be done? What shall we do? If this be known, Cassius or Caesar never shall turn back, for I will slay myself. So either Cassius or Caesar never shall turn back, is never going to return alive from this day. So they might still carry out their plot to kill Caesar, but if this gets found out, Cassius would sooner kill himself. Here, by the way, another one of Cassius's patented suicide threats. And Brutus breaks in to interrupt his verse line and finish it. He says, Cassius, be constant. He has to grab him and calm him down. And remember, constancy is exactly what Portia was praying for in the last scene. Cassius is no better than she is at it. Be constant, be resolute, be unshakable. Popelius Lana speaks not of our purposes, for look, he smiles, and Caesar doth not change. He isn't talking of our purposes, of our intentions, our plans, for look, he smiles. A sort of cue to the actor playing Popelius Lana. And Caesar doth not change. In other words, his expression doesn't change. If Popelius Lana went up to him and said, hey, all these guys are going to assassinate you today, you can imagine Caesar would look a little differently at them. But no, they're just making small talk. Popelius Lana is probably saying something to him like, hope you have a great day at the Senate. So finally, they're starting to breathe again. He's not giving away the plot. And Cassius says, Trebonius knows his time. For look you, Brutus, he draws Mark Antony out of the way. Trebonius knows his time. In other words, he knows the right time to act. For look you, see, he draws Mark Antony out of the way. This was part of the plan, that Trebonius was going to pull Antony aside, say, I need to talk in private for a few minutes, and that's when they would launch the attack. This also seems to imply that at this point in the scene, they've arrived on the capital. It's a staging challenge, because in the course of just a few minutes of this scene, they have to go from the streets into the Senate House. So the plot starts now. The cue is for Trebonius to take Antony out. So he takes him off, and then Decius Brutus turns to them and says, Where is Metellus Cimber? Let him go and presently prefer his suit to Caesar. Where'd that guy go? Because he really is the one to start it up. He has to presently, in other words, immediately at once, prefer his suit, present his request to Caesar. And Brutus replies, he is addressed. Addressed here means like prepared or ready to act. And he tells Decius Brutus, press near and second him. So get close and second him. In other words, back him up or echo what he says. 
And Cinna comes in and says, Casca, you are the first that rears your hand. Rears here means like lifts up. The implication is lifts up to stab him. So remember, your job is to stab Caesar first. Ooh, a lot of pressure on Casca. So all the pieces are now in order. And Caesar finally decides it's time to get started, and he turns to the men and says, Are we all ready? What is now amiss that Caesar and his Senate must redress? What's amiss, what's gone wrong, that Caesar and his Senate must redress? Redress means put right. Though you get that fun sound alike of amiss and redress. And notice that he says Caesar and his Senate. So not only is he using his name in the third person, but it's his Senate. He is definitely feeling this I'm going to be named King today vibe. And Metellus Simber comes forward to start the plan. He says, Most high, most mighty, and most puissant Caesar, Metellus Simber throws before thy seat an humble heart. So it starts with these three words of praise that all start with most. Most high, most mighty, most puissant. Puissant is a funny word that means powerful or strong. So I throw before thy seat, almost like throne. In this case, more like your throne of judgment. And what is he throwing in front of him? His humble heart. You can hear the alliteration of humble heart, but it's as though he's presenting his heart to him to ask for this request. But Caesar doesn't want to hear this for one second. He interrupts him in the middle of the verse line and says, I must prevent thee, Simber. I'm going to stop you right there. These couchings and these lowly courtesies might fire the blood of ordinary men and turn preordinance and first degree into the law of children. These couchings, couchings are like bowings or stoopings, these sort of lowly gestures. And these lowly courtesies, that could be a similar idea, like curtsies, like bowing down. All this bowing in front of me, which may imply that's what Metellus Simber was doing on his last line, they might fire the blood of ordinary men. Fire the blood means like excite the emotions or the passions. You know, they might thrill the emotions of ordinary men, which seems to imply that he is not an ordinary man. What else would they do? They would turn preordinance and first decree into the law of children. Preordinance is like previously established laws. And first decree is like original laws, like established since the dawn of time, Ten Commandments kind of stuff. It would turn all those important laws that we've lived by as a society for millennia into the law of children. In other words, sort of foolish and trivial, like kids make up rules and then break them. I can't mess with the laws just for you. Be not fond to think that Caesar bears such rebel blood that will be thawed from the true quality with that which melteth fools. I mean, sweet words, low-crooked curtsies, and base spaniel fawning. So be not fond. Don't be so foolish to think that Caesar bears such rebel blood, bears as in possesses or has such rebel blood, rebel as in uncontrollable or out of control. And blood again is that like passions or emotions. So the ordinary men, their blood gets fired up by that. But Caesar's saying, I don't have such uncontrollable emotions that will be thawed. Here it means something like altered or changed, but literally it's like melted. So that kind of fire doesn't work on his blood, on his emotions. It's not going to be thawed from the true quality, as in its true nature or its kind of natural stability, with that which melteth fools, melteth as in thawed. The stuff that works on the emotions of foolish people isn't going to work on me. And what works? He says, I mean sweet words, low crooked curtsies. So sweet talking doesn't work. Low crooked means low bending, like the kind of curtsies that get really close to the ground. And base spaniel fawning. I love that adjective spaniel. You can really picture a dog doing that, sort of submissive, like a lap dog would do in front of you. And base means like lowly or miserable. And fawning is flattery, but again, it's a dog word. It's the sort of thing a dog would do to get a treat from you. These things may work on idiots, but they're not going to work on me. Because he knows exactly what Metella Simber is going to be asking about. He's probably asked about it many times before. 
Caesar says, thy brother by decree is banished. So this is about Metellus Cimber's brother, who was banished from Rome. If thou dost bend and pray and fawn for him, I spurn thee like a cur out of my way. So if you bend, if you bow and pray, in other words, beg and fawn for him, there's that word fawn again, that kind of doggy begging. Well, then I'm going to spurn you. Spurn means kick like a cur, like a dog and not a good dog, a mangy dog out of my way. If you're going to act like a dog, I'm going to treat you like a dog. No, Caesar doth not wrong, nor without cause will he be satisfied. So no, as in know this, Caesar doth not wrong. This line has always mystified people a little bit. It doesn't quite make sense. Although it's cool to see Caesar say that he doesn't do wrong, like he can't be wrong. Some people will sort of interpolate a little bit into it. They'll say Caesar doth not wrong, but with just cause, nor without cause will he be satisfied. I don't know if I totally buy that, because why would Caesar say he's doing wrong for any reason? But the second half totally makes sense. He says, nor without cause will he be satisfied. In other words, he's not going to be okay with overturning Metellus Simber's brother's punishment without a good cause. Just because I want to isn't reason enough. And Metellus Simber probably knew this request was going nowhere. Remember, this is just a pretext. So just like they rehearsed, he turns to the crowd and says, Is there no voice more worthy than my own to sound more sweetly in great Caesar's ear for the repealing of my banished brother? So isn't there someone more important than me that can sound more sweetly in great Caesar's ear? Remember, Caesar just said that sweet words won't work on him. Maybe there's another voice, another person who could convince him with their words for the repealing, in other words, the recalling from banishment of his brother. You can also see the desperation built into this from that language again. There are those E words, just like Artemidorus was using. Sweetly, Caesar's ear repealing. And just like they practiced, here's where Brutus steps up. He comes up to Caesar and says, I kiss thy hand, but not in flattery, Caesar, desiring thee that Publius Cimber may have an immediate freedom of repeal. So I kiss your hand, but not to flatter you, Caesar. I do it because I want Publius Cimber to have an immediate freedom of repeal. Freedom of repeal means like permission to return from his banishment. And there's that pleading sound again, freedom of repeal. And Caesar's kind of shocked to see Brutus, who he really respects, standing up for this nothing guy. He says, what, Brutus? Like, seriously, you're in on this too? And then Cassius joins in. He says, pardon, Caesar. Caesar, pardon. There's that chiasma structure again, where you have A, B, B, A, pardon Caesar, Caesar pardon. As low as to thy foot doth Cassius fall, to beg enfranchisement for Publius Cimber. He says, as low as to thy foot doth Cassius fall, which implies blocking, that Cassius is actually falling down on his knees or on the ground to Caesar's foot. Maybe he kisses his foot to beg enfranchisement, to ask for freeing or restoration of his rights. And Caesar's not having this at all. And he unleashes on them. He totally runs out of patience. He says... I could be well moved if I were as you. So I could be well moved. Moved here means like influenced to change. So you could totally influence me to change if I were as you. If I were like you. If I were like all of you guys. Yeah, you know, maybe that would work on me. Whoa. Notice, by the way, this line is all monosyllables again. I could be well moved if I were as you. You have a pretty chaotic scene leading up to this, and this slows it way down. It makes it tight and clear and mean. He goes on. If I could pray to move, prayers would move me. So if I could pray, if I could ask others to change, well, maybe prayers would move me. Prayers from other people, requests from other people. There's that word move again used three times just in those two lines. But he's about to say that moving doesn't work on him at all. He says, But I am constant as the northern star, of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. I am constant. I'm as resolute or unmovable. 
as the northern star, you know, the pole star, what the entire sky moves around, the one star you can sail by and find your way by because it doesn't move in the sky. That's how fixed he is. He never moves. Of whose true fixed and resting quality, true fixed here means like firmly rooted, and resting quality, meaning unchanging or unmoving, there is no fellow. Here it means like equal. There's no one like it in the firmament, in the entire heavens, in the entire sky. That's how constant Caesar is. Not only doesn't he move, he's the only one who doesn't move. The skies are painted with unnumbered sparks. They are all fire and everyone doth shine. So unnumbered sparks. There's so many sparks, so many stars in the sky, they can't even be counted. The skies are painted with them. It's a beautiful image. There are millions and billions of stars out there. They are all fire. They're all made of fire. They're all the same. And everyone does shine. Yeah, they all look the same. But there's but one in all doth hold his place. There's only one of them that stays where it is. That's what makes the pole star unique. And notice again, a monosyllabic line. But there's but one in all doth hold his place. Slowing it down, concentrating it. So in the world. It's the same way in the world we live in. Tis furnished well with men. And men are flesh and blood and apprehensive. So the world is furnished well with men. It's a great word choice. Like the world is a furniture showroom, which has plenty of furniture in it. Furnished as in supplied. Like the world's full of men. Men are flesh and blood. All men are made of the same thing, just like all the stars are made of fire. And they're apprehensive. Apprehensive means like they're perceptive or they can understand things. They can apprehend things. Not in our modern sense of like, well, I don't know if I can go to the store today. And this is a deliberate echo of what came right before it. He said the skies are painted with unnumbered sparks. And he echoes that with the world is furnished well with men. They are all fire gets echoed with men are flesh and blood. And everyone doth shine is echoed with and apprehensive. So we're just like stars that way. There's plenty of people in the world. Yet in the number, I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked of motion. This is the echo to, but there's but one and all doth hold his place. In the number... In other words, among all those people, I do know but one. I only know one man that unassailable, which means something like unquestionable or unable to be brought down. This one guy holds on his rank, which means maintains his place or his nature. Unshaked of motion. Unshaked means unaffected or unchanged of motion by outside influences or requests. Motion, by the way, is just another form of moved. Like I could be well moved if I were as you. So there's one guy who stays right where he is and won't be changed by what other people ask him to do. And that I am he, let me a little show it, even in this. That I am he, that I am that one unshakable person, just let me show it a little bit. Even in this, in this one fact here. That I was constant Simber should be banished, and constant do remain to keep him so. So how is he going to show that he was unshakable? That he was constant, that he was resolute, that Simber, that Publius Simber should be banished, and I remain constant to keep him banished. There's that kind of refrain, constant, constant, banished, keep him so. You know, there's been a lot of talk in this play about how Caesar could become a problem. You know, the thing about the serpent's egg that Brutus was talking about before? This is all very preemptive. We have to get Caesar before he turns bad. So I think it's actually sort of easy to see this as a conspiracy. Like Caesar hasn't actually done anything. They all admit that. They're worried about what he might do. But then you get to this speech and you start to see some hints at what he could become. When he loses his temper a little bit, he says, I'm special. You're all nobodies. I'm unshakable. I'm resolute. You're never going to convince me to change. And it's almost like a preview of the tyrant he could become. So it's tempting to see this assassination either as really justified or really unjustified. But this speech is a little bit chilling. And the other guys in the room may sort of take a step back and say, oh yeah, let's go forward with this plan now. 
and they go for it. Cinna says, oh, Caesar, as though he's joining in too. And Caesar immediately cuts him off. He says, hence, like, get out of here. Wilt thou lift up Olympus? Olympus is the Greek mountain where the gods were supposed to live. It's this giant mountain. Are you going to try and lift that up? Are you going to try and do something impossible? And then Decius Brutus joins in too. He says, great Caesar. He starts to ask him. And Caesar cuts his line off too. He says, doth not Brutus bootless kneel? Bootless means not losing your boots. It means in vain. Although there's that cool echo of Brutus and bootless. So you're kneeling for nothing. He's really furious at them. You can just see how much he'll love being king. And Casca, instead of asking, acts. He says, speak hands for me. So instead of asking, I'm going to ask with my hands. And Casca stabs him. And that's the first act. And soon they all join in, one at a time. They draw their daggers. And they attack Caesar until it's a melee. Knives everywhere and blood everywhere. And Caesar's probably fighting back, too. And then the last one to stab is Brutus himself. And this shocks Caesar because Brutus was his favorite. And he looks up at him and says this famous line, Et tu, Brute? Which is the Latin word for you too, Brutus? Even you? I believe all those other guys, those guys are weasels, but you? What's funny about this is that there's no record of Caesar saying this. What's usually recorded is that he said something in Greek. Kai su technon, you too, my child. There was this little bit of a side rumor that actually Caesar was Brutus's biological father. I don't know if I buy that. But clearly he was like a father figure to him. And he sees Brutus joining in and he says, Then fall, Caesar. Like, why am I even bothering to fight if you're against me too? And with that, he dies. And these guys are all standing around, having just killed the most famous, important person in the world. And we are almost exactly halfway through the play. We've just killed off the title character. So one has to ask, why would you call this play Julius Caesar? Why wouldn't you call it Marcus Brutus? After all, he lives through most of the play. If you go through Shakespeare's other famous tragedies, the title character tends to die pretty close to the end. It's their play. So why call it Julius Caesar? After all, Julius Caesar is now a pile of meat on the ground. I would argue it's because Caesar isn't dead. His body's dead. Caesar the man is dead. But the entire second half of the play is going to be dominated by the idea of Julius Caesar. What it means to Brutus, what it means to Antony, what it means to Rome. Hell, he's even going to make a little bit of a cameo appearance, as you'll see later. Now, you can make the case this was for PR purposes, because Julius Caesar was a really famous name. So everyone coming to this play knows that Caesar's going to be murdered. His story is that famous. But it's a pretty incredible moment nonetheless, especially to see on stage in full Technicolor. So these guys all stand around in the middle of the Senate House, covered in blood, looking at what they have done. They've been talking about this for ages now, but they actually finally carried it out. And the first one to speak is actually a fairly minor conspirator. It's Cinna. He says, Liberty. Freedom. Tyranny is dead. It comes out in these sort of gasps, these single words. Liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. And then he turns to the rest of them and says, Run hence, proclaim, cry it about the streets. It has that same rhythm as that first line. Run hence, run away, run out of here. Proclaim, cry it about the streets. Go yell it around the streets. Liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. And Cassius picks up on this impulse and he says, Some to the common pulpits and cry out, Liberty, freedom, and enfranchisement. The common pulpits are like these public speaking platforms. So he said you should go off to those platforms and cry out a slightly different phrase, liberty, freedom, and enfranchisement. Enfranchisement is like release, or more specifically, maybe the restoring of civil rights. Although I don't know that any civil rights have been taken away yet. Again, they're thinking of the PR side of this. They're thinking about the right words to use. But Brutus, again, no, he needs to take over. He needs to contradict them. So he says, people and senators, be not affrighted. Don't be scared, you guys. Fly not, stand still. Don't run away, 
stand right where you are. It's in those very short, punchy phrases again. Fly not, stand still. Ambition's debt is paid. Ambition's debt, in other words, what Caesar deserved for his excessive ambition, that's been paid. He's dead. It's over. So instead of what might actually work, which is getting the people excited that Caesar's taken out, Brutus says, we're fine. Just calm down. Nobody freak out. And Casca has a suggestion. He says, go to the pulpit, Brutus. Go to one of those speaking platforms. And Decius Brutus adds on, and Cassius too. So they're sort of putting together this plan on the fly. I don't get the sense that they had a great idea for what comes next. You know, it's always fun to launch the war, but it's always hard to figure out what comes after the war. They haven't thought much about winning the peace. And Brutus's first thought is, where's Publius? This is an old senator. He's a guy who isn't in on the plot. And Cinna replies, here, quite confounded with this mutiny. Confounded means like stunned or confused with his mutiny, literally a rebellion, but like a state of disarray. He's shocked at what's just happened. And Metellus Cimber is starting to plan again. He says, stand fast together, lest some friend of Caesar's should chance. So stand fast together, stand close or securely together, lest, just in case, some friend of Caesar's should chance, should happen to. But then he gets cut off by Brutus again, who says, talk not of standing. That's a criticism of Metellus's stand fast. But stand can also mean resisting or fighting. So let's not talk about fighting right now. He just wants to reassure this guy Publius. He says, Publius, good cheer. Good cheer is usually a phrase of sort of greeting or welcome or telling someone that it's going to be okay. He says, there is no harm intended to your person nor to no Roman else. So we intend no harm to your person, to your literally your body, nor to no Roman else, to no other Romans besides Caesar. So tell them, Publius. Tell them that in that way, Publius. Let everybody know it's just about Caesar. No one else is going to be harmed. And Cassius adds, and leave us, Publius, lest that the people rushing on us should do your age some mischief. Cassius seems like he's at least anticipated they might run into some trouble. He says, get out of here, Publius, because it's possible the people rushing on us, rushing right up to us, should do your age, in other words, someone of your advanced age, some mischief, some harm or hurt. We don't want you to suffer for something you didn't do. And Brutus agrees for once. He says, do so and let no man abide this deed, but we the doers. Abide here means like suffer the consequences. So only we who actually did this should have to deal with what comes after it. And then Trebonius comes back in and Cassius asks him, where is Antony? Remember, because Trebonius took him out for a second. And Trebonius replies, fled to his house amazed. So Antony presumably was not that far away and either heard or saw some of what was going on. Amazed isn't just surprised. It used to mean like stunned or struck dumb, almost like someone wandering in a maze. He's run back to his house. And Trebonius actually has a report from outside where they are. He says, men, wives, and children stare, cry out, and run as it were doomsday. So men, wives, and children, so everyone, they stare, that stare of amazement. They cry out, they yell, and they run as, as if it were doomsday, that last day of judgment, you know, when people are sent to heaven or hell. And this is really an echo of what happened the night before when like fire was falling from the sky. This is like the end of days. So clearly things are not going great outside. And Brutus's response is, fates, we will know your pleasures. Remember fates, those goddesses who decide how long you're going to live? We will know your pleasures. In other words, what you want for us, what you decide for us, how long we're going to live. It's not up to us. It's up to you. That we shall die, we know. Tis but the time and drawing days out that men stand upon. There's Shakespeare's old trick of pushing the verb to the end of the thought. It's not, we know that we will die. It's, that we will die, we know. Tis but the time. It's only the time when we'll die and drawing days out. In other words, how extended our lifespan is that men stand upon. Stand upon means dwell on or make a big deal out of. So we know we're going to die. We just don't know when or how many years from now it's going to happen. Which is basically his way of saying we're ready for anything. We've acted as we know is good. If we have to die, we'll deal with that. 
And Casca has sort of a funny response. He says, why, he that cuts off 20 years of life cuts off so many years of fearing death. So a person that cuts off 20 years of life by murdering cuts off so many years, cuts off just as many years, 20 years of fearing death. This is a classic antithesis. You get that cuts off, cuts off, and then 20 years of life and so many years of fearing death. So really, murdering a guy 20 years ahead of his time is great because he's not afraid of death for those 20 years. I guess. And Brutus is happy to pick up on that. He says, grant that, and then is death a benefit? So if we accept that supposition, then actually, death is a good thing. We did him a favor. So are we Caesar's friends that have abridged his time of fearing death? In that sense, we're actually Caesar's friends, not his murderers, because we've abridged, in other words, we've cut short his time of fearing death. Really? Keep telling yourself that, guy. They're immediately trying to justify for themselves or other people what they did to Caesar. Just think of all the years he won't be afraid of death now. We're great. There's just constant PR and justification going on from these guys all the time. They have to convince themselves they were justified to do what they did. And again, thinking about that public image, Brutus says to the rest of them, Stoop, Romans, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Stoop means bend down. So he's calling for all of them to bend down and bathe our hands in Caesar's blood. This is a super weird moment. Remember that dream that Calpurnia had about the Romans washing their hands in the blood that comes out of Caesar like a fountain? Well, now it's actually sort of happening. It's also an incredibly like lurid and bloody moment on stage. Remember, public executions in London were happening not super far away from where the theater was being done. So it's almost like they have to compete with that execution. So you've just seen a guy stabbed to death, and now you see a bunch of guys cover their hands in blood. And not just their hands, their arms up to the elbows. And also besmear, in other words, rub that blood on our swords. The symbolism of this is really important for him. Then walk we forth, even to the marketplace, and waving our red weapons o'er our heads, let's all cry peace, freedom, and liberty. Is this a great idea? I guess we'll see. So walk we forth, let's walk out of this place. There's that word forth again. He should know that's a bad sign. Even to the marketplace. Not just any marketplace, the Roman Forum, which is like the center of public life in the city of Rome. So we'll even walk out to there and waving our red weapons. I love that phrase. We're going to wave them over our heads and cry out, peace, freedom, and liberty. I don't know. I sort of feel like all that bloodiness may make it seem more like murder, murder, and more murder. But look, I didn't kill the guy. Do whatever you want. And Cassius, who pretty clearly isn't running the show anymore, says to the rest of them, stoop then and wash. Let's all bend down and wash our hands and swords. And then you have this incredibly metatheatrical moment in the play. As they're dousing themselves with blood, Cassius says, How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over, in states unborn and accents yet unknown? How many ages, how many years, or even centuries hence from now shall this our lofty scene? Lofty is anything elevated, like ideals or deeds. This high elevated scene. Scene can mean just anything we did, but also it very clearly refers to a performance in the sense of a play. So this great thing we just did is going to be acted over and over again in states unborn, places that haven't even started yet. Like, say, London in 1599, I don't know. And accents yet unknown. Accents as in whole languages, different languages entirely, yet unknown, still, as of yet, not known. So places we can't even imagine are going to act this scene out. And so as a result, every time this play is performed, you're making this statement true. It's kind of cool. They're looking around thinking, we just did something really famous. People are going to be representing this on stage forever. If they had known about movies, they probably would have said something about that too. And Brutus echoes him. He says, How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport that now on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust? So how many times in the future is Caesar going to bleed in sport? 
In other words, for entertainment purposes or in pretend that now the real Caesar on Pompey's basis, basis is like a pedestal, the pedestal of Pompey's statue, which is ironic because they just had a war, lies along. Along means like stretched out on the pedestal. And he's lying there no worthier than the dust, no more important or no greater than the dust itself. Because he's not Caesar anymore, he's just Caesar's remains. And Cassius chimes in, so oft as that shall be, so often shall the not of us be called the men that gave their country liberty. So they're really fantasizing about what they're going to be treated as in the centuries to come. So oft, in other words, as often as that shall be, as often as it's acted out, so often, just as often, shall the not of us be called. Not here means like group or company, but it's a much more alive image, like they're all tied together. So whenever you see Caesar murdered on stage, you're going to see the guys who murdered him called the men that gave their country liberty. You see the strong rhetorical echoes here? How many ages hence? How many times shall Caesar bleed? So oft, so often. This is very formal. But it's also very ironic, because from the perspective of people who are putting this play on now, we know they're not actually going to give their country liberty. They're kind of just going to make it worse. So if you know anything about this story, and people in Shakespeare's time certainly did, there was a ton of irony in this statement. They're going to be known as the men that gave their country empire. So once they get through that part, and presumably everyone's finished washing their stuff with blood by now, Decius Brutus says, what, shall we forth? There's that word again, forth. Shall we go out? And Cassius finishes his line, jumps right on it with, aye, every man away. Let's all go. And then he says something really interesting. He says, Brutus shall lead, and we will grace his heels with the most boldest and best hearts of Rome. He's putting Brutus right at the front of this. He needs a fall guy if everything goes wrong. Brutus is going to lead, and we will grace his heels, which literally means honor by following. But it's more like, yeah, we're actually just going to stand right behind you, so hopefully no one will notice us. We're going to honor his heels with the most boldest and best hearts of Rome. That's how they think of themselves. And then a new person enters, and Brutus turns and says, soft, who comes here? Soft means something like, wait a second, who's this? Oh, it's a friend of Antony's. And the servant comes in, and he has a message. He says, Thus, Brutus, did my master bid me kneel. Oh, okay, it's a stage direction. He kneels down. Thus, in this way, my master, in other words, Antony, bid me kneel, told me to kneel down in front of you. Thus did Mark Antony bid me fall down, and being prostrate, thus he bade me say. So not just kneel, but he told me to fall down on my face, and being prostrate, you know, being flat out on the ground, thus he bade me say, thus he asked or told me to say. You see that repeating structure of thus Brutus, thus did Mark Antony, Thus he bade me say. So this guy is falling down on his face. Notice Antony himself isn't coming back yet. He's afraid. So he sends this other guy in his place and he tells him, be really careful. Totally subjugate yourself to these guys. He told me to say this. Brutus is noble, wise, valiant, and honest. Total praise here. Honest meaning honorable. But then there's an echo in the next line. Caesar was mighty, bold, royal, and loving. Royal is a really interesting choice of words because he got into all that trouble for wanting to be king. It might actually indicate something more like a royal person's generosity. So royal can mean like extremely generous. So he's saying, I love Brutus. Brutus is great. Caesar was also great. Say, I love Brutus and I honor him. So here he's literally reading word for word because this is Antony who said, say, tell Brutus that I love him and I honor him. Notice he's using those words honest and honor around Brutus, which he just knows are Brutus's favorite words to hear. Antony has to be really careful right now. And then again, he echoes that line with something about Caesar. He says, say, I feared Caesar, honored him, and loved him. What's the one addition to that line different from the previous one? He feared Caesar, which seems to imply that he doesn't fear Brutus. It's very subtle, but kind of cool. So he loved and honored Brutus. He feared, loved, and honored Caesar. He's being really cagey still here. This is a dangerous time, and Antony knows it. He goes on, 
If Brutus will vouchsafe that Antony may safely come to him and be resolved how Caesar hath deserved to lie in death, Mark Antony shall not love Caesar dead so well as Brutus living, but will follow the fortunes and affairs of noble Brutus through the hazards of this untrod state with all true faith. That's a very long statement, but you can see why he set it up. He's trying not to take sides here. He's saying, I love Brutus and I love Caesar equally. And so now that that's established, if Brutus will vouchsafe, if he'll allow or permit that Antony may safely come to him, Antony still is worried about his life. He's probably confused why they didn't kill him too. He was the closest guy to Caesar. Antony sure as hell would have killed the guy's friend. He's not a dummy. So if you're going to give him safe passage, and if he can be resolved, in other words, if it can be explained to him or made clear to him how Caesar deserved to lie in death, well then, Mark Antony shall not love Caesar dead, in other words, dead Caesar, so well, as well, as he loves Brutus living. So he'll love Brutus even more than he loved Caesar. And there's that antithesis of dead and living. But instead, he's going to follow the fortunes and affairs of noble Brutus. He'll follow the fortunes, in other words, whatever's going to happen to Brutus. And there's that word noble, just like the word honor. It's one of Brutus's favorite words. He is very deliberately seeding that in there to get his favor on his side. So I'll follow whatever happens to you through the hazards of this untrod state. So he'll follow whatever happens to Brutus. He'll go along with him, thorough the hazards. Thorough is just another word for through. The hazards, the risks. This is actually a gambling term. He'll go through any risks of this untrod state. Untrod literally means never walked on before. But here it means something like never before seen circumstances. This is all new for everybody. So whatever happens in this new world, Antony promises he's going to follow Brutus with all true faith, with all real loyalty. And the servant ends, so says my master Antony. And Brutus loves this. He's like, oh, my plan's working great. No problem with Antony at all. And he responds to the servant, thy master is a wise and valiant Roman. Got this. But notice, Antony's already winning. Because wise and valiant are exactly the terms he just used to describe Brutus to Brutus. His language is sinking in. That flattery is working all over the place. Mission already accomplished. I never thought him worse. In other words, I never thought him less than wise and valiant. And notice this is a short line. It's missing some syllables. As though Brutus is especially satisfied with himself or he's just thinking about what to do next. It's like, I always liked that guy, Antony. And so he gives instruction to the servant. He says, tell him, so please him come into this place, he shall be satisfied and by my honor, depart untouched. So tell him, so please him, if it will please him to come into this place, to come here, he shall be satisfied. He will have things explained to him. And by my honor, in other words, I swear by my honor, which is one of the most important things to Brutus, he's going to depart untouched. In other words, unharmed. And the servant takes that message and says, I'll fetch him presently. I'll go get him at once, immediately. And off he goes to get Antony. And Brutus, still feeling his oats, is like, I know that we shall have him well to friend. To friend means like as our friend. See, this is all working out. He's on our side now. And Cassius, who of course has taken a backseat to Brutus, but is tactically in some ways much smarter, says, I wish we may, but yet have I a mind that fears him much, and my misgiving still falls shrewdly to the purpose. So Brutus says, I know that we shall, and Cassius echoes it. He says, I wish we may, like I hope he becomes our friend, but yet, still, I have a mind that fears him much. Remember, Cassius wanted to kill him at the same time as Caesar. He was worried about this guy, and my misgiving still still means always. So like my worries, they always fall shrewdly to the purpose. Falls means like turns out or ends up. Shrewdly is like seriously or very much. And to the purpose means like close to the truth or accurate to the matter at hand. So he's saying like my misgivings, I'm almost always right about this stuff. I really trust my gut on this one. So I hope you're right. I hope he's going to be our best friend in the world. I hope it all works out great. But I'm kind of worried about this guy. You should be too. Cassius is sending off alarms here. And Brutus is like, no, we're fine. We got this. 
The overconfidence is strong with this guy. And I guess Anthony's house is maybe closer than we thought, because all of a sudden Brutus turns and he sees him. He says, but here comes Anthony. Welcome, Mark Antony. He's playing the good guy already, which would be fine normally, except for the fact that all of their arms and swords are covered in Caesar's blood, and Caesar himself is lying in a heap in the middle of the Senate house. And so Antony doesn't reply to Brutus's welcome, which to be honest is kind of weird given all the murder. Instead, he talks directly to Caesar's body. He says, Oh, mighty Caesar, dost thou lie so low? There's that contrast of mighty and low. He used to be as high and exalted as anyone in Rome, and now look how low he lies. Literally, in the sense that he's spread out dead on the ground, but also figuratively. And he keeps going. Are all thy conquests, glories, triumphs, spoils, shrunk to this little measure? He gets sort of philosophical for a moment. Are all thy conquests, all of your great conquests, your glories, your triumphs, not just in our modern sense of triumph, but those triumphal processions like the one he had on the way in to the play, when a Roman conqueror would come home from victory, these great parades, all of his spoils. And spoils can mean two things. One is closer to our modern sense of the kind of treasure you bring back after winning. And the other is like spoiling your enemies, the sort of destruction you rain down on them. But either way, it's evidence of all the great works he did for Rome. Is all of that wonderful work shrunk to this little measure? Measures like a small space. So all of his worldly glories are shrunk down to this dead corpse. That's all that's left after we die. None of our achievements. And whereas Mark Antony said, welcome, Antony says, fare thee well. Goodbye to Caesar. And with that goodbye, he finally turns to the conspirators. He says, I know not, gentlemen, what you intend. Who else must be let blood? Who else is rank? So I don't know what you guys intend to do. Who else must be let blood? Let blood means like bled out. It's usually a medical term. Remember they would bleed people to make them healthier? Going back to that thing that Brutus had about how they'll be purgers, not murderers. So he doesn't know who else is going to be bled to death. Who else is rank? Rank literally means diseased. Again, it's someone in need of bleeding to restore their health. So who else you consider diseased enough to want to bleed them dry? If I myself... There is no hour so fit as Caesar's death's hour, nor no instrument of half that worth as those your swords made rich with the most noble blood of all this world. So if I myself am one of the people that you're going to bleed, there's no hour so fit, there's no time as appropriate as Caesar's death's hour, the time when Caesar died, literally the hour when he died. I want to die at the same time he did if you're going to kill me nor no instrument of half that worth. Instrument as in tool? There's no tool that's worth half as much as those, your swords, which were made rich, as in enriched. And this is kind of an inversion of what they did. Their swords were actually made rich with the most noble blood of all this world, with Caesar's blood, as though his blood has added something to their swords with its richness. Notice his language, by the way, more enjambment. No hour so fit as Caesar's death's hour, nor no instrument of half that worth. Your swords made rich with the most noble blood. Everything he says is spilling over into the next verse line. I think this emotion of his is really very genuine. There's a lot of stuff that Antony fakes, but I think his love for Caesar is not one of them. So his language goes spilling over here. So it's almost like he's asking for them to kill him. He says, I do beseech you, if you bear me hard, now, while your purpled hands do reek and smoke, fulfill your pleasure. So I beseech you, I beg you, if you bear me hard, in other words, if you resent me, if you have a grudge against me, now, whilst your purpled hands, remember before they were red weapons? Well, now they're purpled hands. A transformation has happened. Number one, when blood comes right out of the body, it's red. But when it sits for a little while, it turns purple or even brown. But number two, 
there's a kind of royal signifier in the color purple, as though Caesar really became a king, and now the blood, which is one of the things that's left of him, has turned a regal purple. So now while your hands, which are covered in his purple blood, do reek and smoke. Reek not in our sense of smell bad, reek here means more like steam. So their hands are still steaming and smoking with the heat of Caesar's blood. It hasn't been that long. They may not literally be, but it's a cool image. And the language is incredibly alive. You hear those hard K sounds of reek and smoke. So if you don't like me, now, while your hands are still smoking with his blood, fulfill your pleasure. Your pleasure as in whatever you want to do. Just do whatever you want to do. Kill me. Live a thousand years? I shall not find myself so apt to die. So in this single word, live, you've encapsulated sort of a whole idea, which is even if I live for a thousand years, a thousand years more after this moment, I shall not find myself so apt to die. Apt as in ready or prepared or having found an appropriate time. So this is the single moment in my life, no matter how long it lasts, that I'd wish to die in. And you can see that antithesis of live at the beginning of the sentence and die at the end of it. No place will please me so, no mean of death as here by Caesar and by you cut off, the choice and master spirits of this age. No place will please me so, no other place would please me as much to die in as this place, because it's by Caesar's side. This is Mark Antony's most Morrissey moment. And he repeats that same form, no mean of death. Mean as in like a method or a way, sort of like we'd use the word means. So there's no way to die that I'd prefer so much as here by Caesar, here next to Caesar. And by you, using another sense of by, at your hands, cut off, i.e. killed. So I'd like to die next to Caesar, and I'd like you to kill me. Why? Because you're the choice and master spirits of this age. Choice as in worthiest or elite, and the master spirits, people of high temperament, the best spirits of the age, of this time. There's a little bit of irony here, too. He says, I'd want to be killed by all the best guys in Rome, which also seems to undercut them saying, oh, these are the best guys in Rome. He's literally saying, if you intend to kill me, kill me here and now. And Brutus responds right back to that. He says, oh, Antony, beg not your death of us. Don't ask to die from us or by us. Though now we must appear bloody and cruel as by our hands and this our present act you see we do, yet see you but our hands and this the bleeding business they have done. So I'm sure we look bloody and cruel. Yeah, because you're covered in his blood. That probably has something to do with it. As by our hands, their bloody hands, and this our present act. Present in the sense of having just happened. So by their hands and by the act they just did, you see that they appear bloody and cruel. But he says, see you but our hands. In other words, you only see our hands. And this the bleeding business they have done. You hear that alliteration of bleeding business. So it's an echo of hands and present act in hands and bleeding business. So he's saying, we must appear cruel to you given what we did, but all you see is what we did, the outside part of it. You only see our bloody hands. Our hearts you see not. You don't see what's inside. You don't see the reasons we did it. We must look like monsters, but our hearts were totally in the right place. So it's that contrast of hands, the external action, and hearts, the internal feeling or thought. So he's saying, you don't see our hearts. They are pitiful. And pity to the general wrong of Rome, as fire drives out fire, so pity, pity, hath done this deed on Caesar. So you don't see our hearts, they're pitiful, they're full of tender pity. And pity towards whom? Compassion towards whom? The general wrong of Rome. Wrong as in the wronging or the harm of Rome. And general here means like the common people. So our hearts felt that some wrong was being done to Rome. That explains why we did what we did with our hands. So it's that same pity for the common people of Rome that has done this deed on Caesar. In other words, to Caesar. And then there's that parenthetical there. If you don't already have parentheses around as fire drives out fire, so pity, pity, put them in there. 
In fact, if you're cutting this play for time, that might be a good line to cut because it interrupts the sort of straight flow of the idea. But what is he saying? As fire drives out fire, just in the way that fire drives out fire, I don't know if that's actually a thing that fire can destroy fire, but okay, go on. So in the same way, pity drives out pity. So in this case, the pity they felt for Rome, that strong feeling of compassion for Rome, drove out their strong feeling of compassion for Caesar himself. The common good had to outweigh the single good. Okay, go on. For your part, to you our swords have leaden points, Mark Antony. For your part, as for you, to you, towards you, our swords have leaden points. Lead as in soft or dull. Don't pick up a piece of lead and feel it, but if you did, you would feel that it's much softer. So whereas their swords might be iron or steel, their swords are totally soft to Mark Antony. They have no intention of stabbing him. Our arms in strength of malice and our hearts of brother's temper do receive you in with all kind love, good thoughts, and reverence. So this is a really strange turn this takes. Our arms in strength of malice. In strength of malice means with the same strength they had in doing these malicious acts to Caesar. So the same arms that stabbed Caesar and our hearts of brother's temper. Temper as in temperament. We have a spirit of brotherhood towards you do receive you in, in other words, do welcome you in, in an embrace, with all kind love, good thoughts, and reverence. Reverence like respect for him. And you can see again, there's that contrast of arms and hearts, whereas before it was hands and hearts. It's the same idea. So with our strength we welcome you, with our external strength, and with our internal feeling. And you can see his last line is full of stressed syllables. All kind love, good thoughts. There's almost no unstressed syllables at all. He really wants to communicate how much they respect Antony. Unfortunately, he keeps doing it by reminding Antony of these images of blood and murder against the person that Antony cared the most about. So not great packaging. And then Cassius chimes in. Remember, Cassius wanted this guy dead. He's still pretty unsure that leaving him alive was a good idea. But he knows exactly how you win people over. It isn't with good thoughts and respect. He says, Your voice shall be as strong as any man's in the disposing of new dignities. Yes, give him stuff. Your voice, your opinion, shall be strong as any man's, as any of us, in the disposing of new dignities. Disposing is like giving out. And new dignities are like high official positions. So now that we're in charge, when we start giving out the spoils of our victory, you're going to have a say in who gets what. This is real power. Cassius knows. He deals with these people all the time. It's not about honor and nobility to them. It's about stuff. It's about what can you do for me. It also gets some push with the alliteration of disposing and dignities. But Brutus goes on, almost ignoring him. He says, Only be patient till we have appeased the multitude beside themselves with fear. So just wait a little longer until we've appeased, which means like calm down, the multitude, the sort of big general public. In Hamlet, which he writes just after Julius Caesar, Claudius calls them the distracted multitude, which is a great way to describe them, the general populace. They're beside themselves with fear. We still have that expression, beside themselves. Remember, there's craziness going on in the streets now that they've heard about Caesar's death. We just have to calm them down. It'll be easy. And then we will deliver you the cause why I, that did love Caesar when I struck him, have thus proceeded. We will deliver you, we'll tell to you, or we'll describe to you the cause, the reason why I, that loved Caesar when I struck him. This is really interesting. Bruce is saying that he loved Caesar even at the time he stabbed him. It's a contradiction in terms. Why I have thus proceeded. In other words, why I've acted in this way. And notice the really interesting thing that happens in this line. We will deliver the cause why I have thus proceeded. It's not we anymore. It's I. Brutus thinks he's in charge. And he does it mid-sentence. And why is he saying this? Well, remember, 
one of Antony's demands for returning to talk to them was that they explain why Caesar died, what he did that made it necessary to kill him. So Antony jumps right into the verse line. He says, I doubt not of your wisdom. You know what? That's fine. I'm sure you had your reasons. Now, I'm sure Antony actually does doubt their wisdom. This seems like a bad move on every level. He's saying, fine, don't worry. We'll handle this. And then he does something amazing. He turns to all the conspirators and says, let each man render me his bloody hand. Render as in give or shake in this case. He wants to shake all their hands while they're still bloody. He says, first, Marcus Brutus, will I shake with you? Next, Caius Cassius, do I take your hand? Now, Decius Brutus, yours. Now yours, Metellus. Yours, Cinna. And my valiant Casca, yours. The last, not least in love, yours, good Trebonius. This is in some ways very similar to that middle of the night scene when all the conspirators came to Brutus's house and he shook their hands one by one as a sort of way to seal the agreement. Now Antony's doing the same thing, and ostensibly it's out of friendship, but to me it always seems like he's kind of marking them out one by one. I'm going to get you, and 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 I'm definitely going to get you. My favorite part about this is that he says Trebonius, though last, is not least in love. Like, he loves him just as much as the rest of them. He's also the last one that he shakes, that he marks. And notice, Trebonius didn't even stab Caesar. He was just part of the plot. Remember, he took Antony out to distract him. But too bad, no one gets off. And he finishes shaking all their hands. Presumably, his hand is now covered in Caesar's blood. And then he turns to them and says, Gentlemen all, alas, what shall I say? There's a little bit of irony to that gentleman. Is this the kind of act that gentlemen would do? Kill their leader? And he says, what shall I say? His heart, I'm sure, is full of emotion for Caesar, but he's also walking a tightrope here. He says, my credit now stands on such slippery ground that one of two bad ways you must concede me, either a coward or a flatterer. My credit, as in my credibility, my believability, now stands on such slippery ground. You can really imagine that. Almost like he's walking on ice. He could fall at any time. His credibility could be gone. It's on such slippery ground, it's so tenuous, that one of two bad ways you must conceit me. Conceit as in think of me or imagine me to be. So you're going to think of me either in one bad way or in another also bad way. You're going to think of me either as a coward or a flatterer. Either a coward because he did nothing for his friend, or a flatterer because he's saying these things to people who killed his friend. And he turns again to Caesar and talks to him like he's still alive. He says, that I did love thee, Caesar? Oh, tis true. He's not going to pretend he didn't love Caesar. If then thy spirit look upon us now, shall it not grieve thee dearer than thy death to see thy Antony making his peace, shaking the bloody fingers of thy foes, most noble, in the presence of thy course? So if your spirit, literally like your soul or even your ghost, which is important for this play, if it's looking at us right now, wouldn't it grieve thee? Wouldn't it make you mourn dearer than thy death, almost worse than the death itself? Though there's that alliteration of dearer and death, to see thy Antony making his peace. This is the coward part. He's making peace with the people that killed Caesar? If Caesar's watching, he's going to hate that. Making his peace by shaking the bloody fingers of thy foes. There's more alliteration, fingers and foes. In the presence of thy corpse, corpse just meaning corpse. So in front of your corpse, I'm shaking the hands of the people who made you a corpse. And there's that little interpolation there, most noble. After the foes, and this is sort of cool because it could mean a lot of different things at the same time. It could mean that Caesar's foes, his enemies, were most noble. So it's almost like flattery to the guys who are standing there. Or there could be an ironic sense to it, like, oh, most noble. It's a lot like the way he's going to use the word honorable later on in a super ironic way to describe them. 
It could even be ironic in a way that his enemies are supposed to get. Like he's actually taking himself down as the one who's, oh, quote unquote, most noble for shaking Caesar's enemy's hands. And he goes on and it gets worse. He says, had I as many eyes as thou hast wounds, weeping as fast as they stream forth thy blood, it would become me better than to close in terms of friendship with thine enemies. Had I, if I had as many eyes as you have wounds. That's an incredible image and you're going to see it a lot in this play. In fact, you see it a lot in Shakespeare's plays in general. Wounds being like mouths or eyes. If I had as many eyes as you have wounds, which we find out later is like 30-something wounds. If I had 30-something eyes, weeping as fast as they stream forth thy blood, as fast as your wounds stream forth your blood, presumably Caesar is still kind of bleeding out at this point. It hasn't been that long. So if my eyes could weep as fast as your wounds bleed, that would become me better. It would befit me better. It would be more noble than to close. Close means like agree or come to terms in terms of friendship with thine enemies. So he's really taking himself to task. He thinks it might make more sense to just cry and cry instead of actually coming to terms with the people who killed Caesar. Pardon me, Julius. This is really interesting. This is one of the very few times in this play that he's named just by his first name. It's much more intimate and personal. Remember, at this point, Caesar has become almost like a title, and indeed it will after Caesar dies. But Julius is just his name. He says, pardon me, I'm sorry, my friend, the person. We don't get a ton of glances of Caesar the person, but here it is. Here wast thou bade, brave heart, here didst thou fall. And here thy hunters stand, signed in thy spoil and crimsoned in thy leaf. Here wast thou bade. Here in this spot were you bade. This is an extended image from hunting. So when the hunting dogs corner the animal you're hunting and bark at it, that's when the hunters swoop in and kill the animal. And that's what baying is. So you were surrounded here by these dogs. Brave heart. Not the Mel Gibson movie. And this isn't so much brave in our modern sense, it's much more like noble or worthy. And he calls him heart, which is a word for a deer. But there's a little bit of a pun on heart. H-E-A-R-T. Like he was his dear heart. So you were surrounded here, here didst thou fall, in other words, here were you killed, and here thy hunters stand. The conspirators are the people who hunted him to death. And you can see that rhetorical structure of here, here, here. They're standing here, signed in thy spoil. Signed means like marked, with thy spoil. Spoil again means destruction or slaughter. In hunting, by the way, spoil was also used to refer to the organs that you took out of the animal immediately and then fed to the dogs as their reward for hunting. So it's as though they spread his bloody entrails all over them. Gross, right? And by the same token, he says they are crimsoned in thy leaf. Crimsoned is a verb form of crimson. It means like painted red in thy leaf. Leaf or leafy is a mythological reference. It's the river of forgetfulness in the underworld. You had to be dipped in that to forget your life on earth before you crossed over. The forgetfulness part doesn't necessarily communicate. Here it probably refers to something like the deathly oblivion or his life's blood in general. But it's as though Caesar's blood has become the river of death. So he's saying he's standing at the site of the kill with the hunters, even though he was a friend of the animal that was hunted. And he continues that hunting metaphor. He says, O world, that was the forest to this heart. And this indeed, O world, the heart of thee. So this is a little twisty. He says, to the world, you were the forest to this heart. Heart, again, as in deer. And this indeed, this corpse, Caesar, in other words, was the heart of thee, heart of the world. And you can see that contrast again of heart, H-A-R-T, and heart, H-E-A-R-T. So the world is the forest he was hunted through, and the deer in the forest was like the heart of the body. So it's a pretty elaborate poetic metaphor. He goes on even more with it. He says, how like a deer struck by many princes dost thou here lie. 
Again, Caesar is a deer. This is a very, very strange image. How like? You look just like a deer that was struck in, in other words, that was struck down or shot by many princes, many noblemen, the kind of guys who would dress up and hunt in the forest. And look, Caesar may not officially have become a tyrant, but I don't think he was quite this innocent. This is a way, again, of rehabilitating Caesar's image, that he was like an innocent animal that was chased through the forest by cruel noble hunters. And Cassius sees exactly what he's doing in many ways, and he cuts him off mid-verse line. He says, Mark Antony, but Antony doesn't cede the floor. He says, pardon me, Caius Cassius. The enemies of Caesar shall say this. So I'm sorry, but even Caesar's enemies will say this. He was a great guy. Then in a friend, it is cold modesty. So if even the enemies say that, when a friend says it, like myself, it is cold modesty. Cold in the sense of unemotional. And modesty, not like our modern sense of modesty, not like wearing the right clothing, but more like moderation or just normal speech. So a real friend would use even more flowery language. If even his enemies agree with this, then when a real friend says it, this is nothing. This is moderation. But Cassius wants to get him off this topic. He says, I blame you not for praising Caesar so, but what compact mean you to have with us? Yeah, this is not about any of your praise for Caesar. I just, I'm, there's a little bit of a timer here. We have to hurry up. What compact, what agreement, what kind of covenant mean you do you intend to make with us? Let's get this status decided before we all leave this building and have to deal with the people. Will you be pricked in number of our friends or shall we on and not depend on you? Will you be pricked in number? This word pricked is going to come up later in the play. It means like marked down as one of our friends, almost like making a little check mark on a paper. Can we add you to our list of friends or shall we on? In other words, shall we continue, go on and not depend on you? We need to know this status now before anything else happens. And Antony replies, therefore, I took your hands, but was indeed swayed from the point by looking down on Caesar. Therefore, for that exact reason, just to do exactly that, presumably to mark him down as one of their friends, that's why I took your hands, but was indeed swayed from the point. I was diverted or distracted away from the point by looking down at Caesar. It's hard to see your best friend lying bloody on the ground and remember what we were talking about. Friends, am I with you all and love you all upon this hope that you shall give me reasons why and wherein Caesar was dangerous. He says, friends, am I with you all? I am friends with you all. Though notice it's much stronger to start the sentence with that stressed friends. That's why the word order is all over the place. We're all friends. I love you all upon this hope. So I'll be friends with you if you fulfill this one part, that you shall give me reasons why and wherein, wherein meaning in what way Caesar was dangerous. Again, he's still going to insist on that part. I need to know what he did that deserved death. And to Brutus, this is obvious. He says, or else were this a savage spectacle, or else means otherwise. So if we don't tell you why Caesar was dangerous, this would be a savage spectacle. You can hear those strong S sounds of savage spectacle. It really paints how awful the thing they just did was. Just from a technical standpoint, they messed this guy up pretty bad. He is stabbed bad. So if we didn't explain it, this would all just be savage. I would like to point out, however, it is a savage spectacle. Having reasons don't make it much better. In fact, he says, our reasons are so full of good regard that were you, Antony, the son of Caesar, you should be satisfied. So our reasons are so full of good regard, good consideration, like we thought this over so much, that were you, if you were, Antony, the son of Caesar, not just his good friend, but if you were his son, you should be satisfied. Our reasons are amazing. We have all the best reasons. And Antony immediately finishes his line. He says, that's all I seek. I just want to know the reasons. And am, moreover, suitor that I may produce his body to the marketplace. And in the pulpit, as becomes a friend, speak in the order of his funeral. So he says, that's all I seek. That was all I was looking for. Just that explanation. 
But it turns out that wasn't all he seeks. He just wants this one more tiny little nothing thing. Just nothing at all. I'm suitor. In other words, I'm someone who's making a request. Then I may produce his body. In other words, bring forth or present his body to the marketplace. Bring it out in the Roman Forum. You know, the center of town, the most important place in town. And in the pulpit, in that public speaking podium, as becomes a friend, as is appropriate to a good friend, speak in the order of his funeral. Speak in the ceremony of his funeral. Just want to give him a eulogy, that's all. He's just trying to sneak it past the goalie here. And Brutus says, sure, you shall, Mark Antony. And Cassius immediately jumps in and finishes his verse line. He says, Brutus, a word with you? Cassius, again, is not stupid. He knows exactly what's going on here. So he takes Brutus aside and he says, you know not what you do. You don't know what you're doing here. Do not consent that Antony speak in his funeral. Don't let him do this. This is so important. Know you how much the people may be moved by that which he will utter? You see that strong, forceful no at the beginning of the line. Don't you know how much the people may be moved by that which he will utter, that which he will speak? Yeah, that's a really good point. Letting Antony speak in Caesar's funeral is a terrible idea. We should probably make this a pretty low-key funeral, in fact. Just get this guy out of here. Again, Cassius has some very legitimate fears. He has a lot of really good ideas. He's a tactician. And Brutus just believes that everyone's heart is in the right place, that he can control this, that if it's just explained to people, then they'll totally be won over. Because he barely even lets Cassius finish. He jumps into his verse line. He says, By your pardon, I will myself into the pulpit first and show the reason of our Caesar's death. So by your pardon, if you'll allow me, if I could, I will myself, I'll go myself into the pulpit first. He's going to get into that public speaking podium first before Antony ever gets up there and show the reason of our Caesar's death. I'll just explain why we killed him. It'll work great. What Antony shall speak, I will protest he speaks by leave and by permission, and that we are contented Caesar shall have all true rites and lawful ceremonies. So what Antony shall speak, whatever he says, I will protest, not in our modern sense, it means like I'll announce or I'll declare that he speaks by leave, like by our authorization and by permission. He's only speaking because we allowed him to. And that we are contented that Caesar shall have all true rites all like proper legitimate burial rites and lawful ceremonies. We're not just going to dump him in the ground. We'll let him have all the rites of burial. So I've taken care of it all. We don't have to worry. Got it under control. And he concludes, it shall advantage more than do us wrong. Advantage here as a verb. It's going to benefit us more than it does us wrong. So actually having Antony speak is a good thing. It'll show what great guys we are and how noble our intentions were. There's no convincing this guy. And Cassius says to Brutus, I know not what may fall. I like it not. Fall here means happen. It's short for befall. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I don't like this. And see how he's speaking? He's speaking in monosyllables. It's slowing it down. It's like one last gasp. I know not what may fall. I like it not. He almost sounds defeated. So Brutus breaks out of their little aside together, and he turns back to Antony and says, Mark Antony, here, take you Caesar's body. Oh, that's so thoughtful. In fact, we're not even going to take him. You take him yourself. You shall not in your funeral speech blame us, but speak all good you can devise of Caesar, and say you do it by our permission. So this is that little condition he was talking about just now with Cassius. So in your funeral speech, don't blame us, but speak all good you can devise, all good things you can think up of Caesar, in other words, about Caesar, and say you do it by our permission. Say we gave you permission to do it. So you can't say anything bad about us, you can only say good things about Caesar. He says, else shall you not have any hand at all about his funeral, else otherwise... You won't have any hand at all. You won't have any role or involvement about his funeral, regarding his funeral. So unless you promise to speak like that, you can't be involved. And you shall speak in the same pulpit whereto I am going after my speech is ended. You're going to speak in the same public platform whereto, to which I am going, after my speech is ended. 
So we're going to speak from the same pulpit. You'll just speak after me. So those are his conditions for Antony speaking. And Antony very quietly says, be it so. I do desire no more. Be it so just means it'll be exactly the way you describe. It'll be just like that. Perfect. I do desire no more. That's all I ask. More than happy. Cheerio. Thanks, sucker. He's gotten everything he wants from Brutus. So that agreement is made and Brutus maybe shakes his hand again and says, prepare the body then and follow us. Remember, Antony's going to bring out Caesar's body. So they're going to go out first, run through the streets with their freedom, liberty stuff. And then Antony will bring out Caesar's body for the funeral in the forum. And off they go, leaving Antony alone. And after this big, giant, chaotic crowd scene that was the assassination, the textures thinned way down. Here we have just one character on stage, Antony. Well, two characters if you count the dead guy. This is always one of the difficult parts where you're killed early in a scene and then just have to kind of lie on stage. This happens to Polonius too. You get stabbed, you die, and then you just have to lie there as still as possible while 25 minutes of action is going on around you. So this is in some ways a monologue or a soliloquy, but it has a really clear target. It's not just the audience here, it's really Caesar's dead body. He's talking to Caesar. So he's left alone with the body and he says, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. He apologizes to Caesar's body. He calls him a bleeding piece of earth. Earth as in like dead material, in that same sense of dust to dust. And why does he want Caesar's pardon? Because he is meek and gentle. Meek as in submissive. So I'm sorry for being so nice to these butchers. Remember earlier when Brutus said we're not going to be butchers? Well, Antony here is saying, no, they're butchers. Thou art the ruins of the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times. I love this word choice, ruins. It's that bleeding piece of earth thing again. He's not a man anymore. He's ruins, almost like the ruins of an ancient building. So you used to be the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times. There's another amazing image, the tide of times. Times as in history or eras. And what is this tide? Well, in one way, it's kind of like the course of time, the course of history. But more specifically, what does the tide do? It comes in and goes out. This is a very common image in Renaissance poetry, and in Shakespeare in particular. Much like that idea of the wheel of fortune, where sometimes you're high and sometimes you're low. Well, it's the same with this. Sometimes it's high tide, sometimes it's low tide. There's that ebb and flow of history. So throughout all that ebbing and flowing, he's saying Caesar was the noblest man who ever lived. Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood. Woe as in sorrow or suffering. Suffering should come to the hand. In other words, the person. This is an example of what's called synecdoche, where a piece of something stands in for the whole of something, sort of like referring to America by the word Washington. So sorrow to the person that shed this costly blood. Costly as invaluable or precious. So he's cursing the assassins. And notice the rhythm of this line. It's not woe to the hand, it's woe to the hand. You feel the depth and the gravity of that woe. Over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue, a curse shall light upon the limbs of men. So over thy wounds, on your wounds, now do I prophesy. I predict, almost like a priest reading the entrails. Remember before when they opened up the animal to see the future? Well, now he's seeing the future over Caesar's wounds. And what is he prophesying? That a curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Light is short for a light, like it's going to land or fall on the limbs of men. Maybe going back to that hand that shed his blood. So he's prophesying a curse. There's also that parenthetical in the middle of this sentence, which is about those wounds. He says, like dumb mouths, dumb in the sense they can't speak because the wounds don't have voices in them. And there's that image again, whereas before his wounds were eyes, now they're mouths. He's saying they do ope their ruby lips. They open their ruby lips, their dark red lips. Kind of gross, right? But you can really see it. 
as though those dozens of wounds are opening their lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue, to request the voice and utterance, in other words, the speaking or eloquence of Antony's tongue, because again, he's going to go and speak to the people in a few minutes. So it's as though Caesar's stab wounds are all mouths that are begging him to speak on their behalf because they're dumb. They can't speak. And notice that first line, over thy wounds now do I prophesy. It's a crazy word order. But again, Shakespeare's doing his favorite trick, which is shifting the verb to the end of the verse line. He has to get prophesied to the end. So in a normal word order, it would be, I now do prophesy over thy wounds. But instead we get over thy wounds now do I prophesy. So what is this curse that he's prophesying? Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. So domestic fury, domestic can mean local or it can even mean within the home itself. And fierce civil strife, civil in the sense of within the nation, like a civil war. And Shakespeare is really juicing this language with sound. You get a lot of alliteration. You get fury, fierce, strife, and also fierce civil strife. So it's very crackling alive language for what's going to happen, this fury and strife, fighting. What will they do? They'll cumber all the parts of Italy. We have this word encumber. It's sort of like that. Cumber means to burden or trouble. So all the parts of Italy are going to be troubled by this fighting. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war, all pity choked with custom of fell deeds. So blood and destruction shall be so in use. In other words, so customary, so something that we're used to, and dreadful objects, not just objects in our modern sense, but objects more like sights, things we see, will be so familiar, and notice that parallel construction of so in use and so familiar, that mothers shall but smile. Mothers are just going to smile when they behold their infants quartered. Ooh, that's an amazing, creepy image. Babies cut in pieces. It doesn't necessarily just mean cut in four pieces, but hacked up. This is sort of like that medieval torture of drawing and quartering. So mothers are just going to smile when they see their infants hacked to pieces. Why? Because all pity has been choked. All pity, all compassion was choked. In other words, cut off or removed with custom of fell deeds. Custom as in becoming accustomed to. And fell here means like savage or cruel. So they're so used to these terrible deeds being done in war that all they can do is smile when another baby gets killed. It doesn't sound like it's going to go well. This is almost like an Old Testament prophecy. And what's the last part of his prophecy? This is the important one. And Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge, with Ate by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war, that this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. Intense, right? But also incredibly important, because this is really the first time we hear about Caesar's spirit. And spirit here is literally just ghost. He says, Caesar's ghost is going to be hanging around. It's going to be ranging for revenge. Ranging as in like roaming or wandering around the countryside, looking for revenge. And you see that strong alliteration again, ranging for revenge. So not only do you get those R sounds at the beginning, but you also get those G sounds in the middle. G as J, ranging for revenge. With Ate by his side, Ate is the Greek goddess of ruin, and her job is to come destroy people who think too highly of themselves. She's like the goddess of hubris. So not only his ghost, but this goddess Ate of ruin is going to be by his side, come hot from hell. So she was just in hell, and so recently from hell that she's still hot. You again get that alliteration of hot and hell. So Caesar's ghost shall in these confines, confines meaning like regions or territories within Rome, with a monarch's voice, with the voice of a king, 
almost like a king leading his troops into battle. Remember, this play was probably performed alongside Henry V, and remember also that Caesar was killed because he wanted to become a king, or could have become a king. So he imagines the ghost as a king leading his troops into war. So what is this ghost going to do? He's going to cry havoc. Okay, here's the famous line alert. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. But this has a very specific meaning. Because in battle, when the commander yelled out the word havoc, that was a signal to the troops to not take prisoners and to rain down total destruction. This is the no quarter signal. You yell havoc, everybody dies. And what else? Let slip the dogs of war. Let slip means let off their leashes. Slips were a kind of dog collar you'd put on hunting or racing dogs that allowed you to release them very easily. So if you wanted your dogs to attack, you would let them slip. So basically the kind of war he's talking about is atrocities, it's killing everyone. The other really important thing about this famous line is usually it's done as like the end of the speech. And then there's an afterthought. But actually, that afterthought is really important. So when you're performing this, I hope you'll get past it. Yes, he's saying that, but the sentence also has an end. This happens a lot. People like to choose out their favorite part of a Shakespeare quotation, like just the famous part, but often it goes on and completely changes the meaning of the famous quotation. So the ghost is going to be at total war with his enemies, that this foul deed, that, in order that, so that, this foul deed. The deed, presumably, is the murder of Caesar. And why is it foul? Well, foul can mean evil, but it can also mean like foul-smelling. And what does he want this deed to do? He wants it to smell above the earth. So what they did to Caesar should stink so bad that people can smell it above the earth, even when it's buried. And what else is going to smell above the earth? Carrion men. These are either rotting corpses or men who are dying with terrible wounds. They're the ones who are groaning for burial. Carrion men is an incredibly arresting phrase. So the result of Caesar's ghost ranging in the land is going to be men dying everywhere because of this action that they carried out. And this is really lurid, incredible stuff. Strong imagery, strong language. But let's not forget what it also is. It's a prophecy, of which we have a lot in this play. In a sense, Antony is a soothsayer. He says, this is going to end in war and not the good kind. It's going to be brutal civil war. The people are going to suffer terribly for it. So this is a nice warm-up speech for the actor playing Antony. He hasn't had a lot to do yet, but he's about to have a ton to do. Really, the second half of this play almost belongs to him. So it's nice to get warmed up with this really meaty language before you go into your big stuff. And just as he finishes this big prophecy to Caesar's body, a man comes in and Antony turns and says, you serve Octavius Caesar, do you not? And here's where the plot gets interesting. This is the first mention we have in this play of an incredibly important character who's about to come in, Octavius. He's going to show up as an even more important character in Antony and Cleopatra, the sort of sequel to this play. In fact, he's going to be in some ways the last man standing after all of this. And he's going to turn into an incredibly important Roman emperor. But notice he's not just Octavius here, he's Octavius Caesar. Because after Caesar's death, he takes on his name to become the heir, not just to Caesar himself, because as a relative of Caesar, he is his literal heir, but he's becoming the heir to the idea of Caesar. And in fact, future Roman emperors are all going to take on the name Caesar. So in that sense, Caesar lives on through his name. Sort of like the Dread Pirate Roberts. It's more of a name than a person. So we have this incredibly consequential character appearing on the scene. So Antony asks if he serves Octavius, and the servant replies, I do, Mark Antony. And Antony says, Caesar did right for him to come to Rome. Oh, so apparently before he died, Caesar summoned him. And the servant replies, he did receive his letters and his coming, and bid me say to you by word of mouth, Oh, Caesar... So he got Caesar's letters, he's on his way, and bid me say to you, he asked me to say to you by word of mouth, 
By word of mouth means like in person as opposed to with a letter. He wanted someone to actually talk to him. But then the servant stops and he says, oh, Caesar, this may be the first time in the scene where he sees the body. Me, I'd be thrown off by all the blood and the people rioting in the streets, but maybe Antony's been blocking exactly who this is. And he moves at one point and the servant sees, oh my God, it's Caesar. Octavius didn't ask him to say, oh, Caesar. Oh, Caesar is what he says when he sees Caesar's hacked body. And Antony sees his grief and says, thy heart is big. Not just like you have a big heart, but it's actually swollen up with emotion. And he says to him, get thee apart and weep. Get thee apart, go somewhere else and weep. Just go cry, it's fine. Passion I see is catching. For mine eyes, seeing those beads of sorrow stand in thine, begin to water. So the servant breaks down. Maybe he actually knew Julius Caesar himself well. Passion, in other words, emotion, especially grief in this case, I see, is catching. It's infectious or contagious. Why is emotion contagious? Because mine eyes, seeing those beads of sorrow stand in thine. Beads of sorrow as in teardrops. My eyes see tears in your eyes, and they begin to water. So it's infectious. So they have a shared moment of sadness together. And then he gets back to business. He says... Is thy master coming? Is Octavius on his way? And the servant replies, He lies tonight within seven leagues of Rome. He lies, in other words, he camps or lodges within seven leagues of Rome. A league is about three miles, so he's maybe 20 miles outside of Rome. He's not far. Okay, so Antony replies, Post back with speed and tell him what hath chanced. Post means to ride fast. Now find the fastest horse you can and ride with speed and tell him what hath chanced. Chanced means taken place or happened. Here is a mourning Rome, a dangerous Rome. No Rome of safety for Octavius yet. You can really hear the refrain here of Rome, Rome, Rome. And along with that would have come that same pun that we heard before, in the sense that our word room used to sound exactly like Rome. There's also that Rome of R-O-A-M. So it's almost like there's no room of safety for Octavius yet. But he's saying it's mourning, it's dangerous, and it's not safe. And you can really hear the rhetorical power of that refrain. Here is a mourning Rome, a dangerous Rome, no Rome of safety for Octavius yet. High hence and tell him so. High hence, hurry away from here and tell him that. But wait, he says, yet stay a while. Stay means wait. Wait just a second. Thou shalt not back till I have borne this corpse into the marketplace. This is really interesting. Thou shalt not back. You won't go back to him till I have borne this corpse, until I've carried this corpse into the marketplace, into the Roman forum. Well, why? He says, There shall I try, in my oration, how the people take the cruel issue of these bloody men, according to the which thou shalt discourse to young Octavius of the state of things. There shall I try. Try here means test out. In my oration, in my funeral speech, in my eulogy, how the people take the cruel issue of these bloody men. Issue here means more like action or deed. He's going to use this speech to test how the people take the action that these men carried out, these assassins. According to the which, so according to the result of which, based on what happens after I give my speech, thou shalt discourse, you'll tell or describe to young Octavius of the state of things. And he calls him young Octavius, but that's accurate. In real life, Octavius was about 17 when this happened. He was young. So instead of going right back to Octavius now, he wants to be able to give the servant a more accurate picture of what's happening. And he can't do that until he's tried out his scheme to see if he can get the people back on his side. But of course, he can't carry Caesar's body alone. And he says to the servant, lend me your hand. And off they go with Caesar's body to the forum. That's the end of episode three of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I suspect you know what's coming in the next episode. We're going to have us some funeral orations. But I think you'll be surprised that they aren't exactly what you thought they were. I hope you're enjoying Clear Shakespeare. If you do, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe on iTunes. And if you especially like it, please leave a good review. Also, keep in mind, this takes a lot of time and effort on my part. I'd really appreciate it if you could go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to help make this podcast possible. Thanks a lot. Bye.